this episode, Justice League America number 39 and Justice League Europe number 15, cover dated June 1990. And welcome to the 39th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, we feature two different guest hosts, and we'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later. But for now, my first co-host is a returning guest of the show and a longtime friend. He's a podcaster, a Superman stan, a fur baby daddy, and a limbo champion. Because, quite frankly, he's already closer to the ground than most people. Folks, please help me welcome back Mr. Michael Bailey. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Mike. Thanks for being here, buddy. How you doing? Calling me a fur baby daddy makes it seem like I've knocked up a dog, and I don't know if I'm comfortable with that or not. I'm not asking and I'm not telling, all right? <laughs> and, and yes, there are bar stools bigger than me. I've heard that. <laughs> she once so eloquently said, I'm fine, man. It's great being back in the embassy. You've redecorated. It's all those UN flags I used to have up. They're all missing now, so I had yeah. to change it up. It's, it's okay. I mean, you know, it's not as great as the old place. But Well, well you were here for Justice League Europe last time, so you might be getting that confused. You might be remembering the Paris Embassy, because you were there for the brand spanking premiere of that issue. Yes, I was. Suck it, Ryan. I'm still getting hate mail on that. But anyway. <laughs> As you should. Michael Bailey brings the hate. I think <laughs> is the best way to say that. I read that on a bathroom wall somewhere. Um, Mike and I are going to talk a lot about this comic, I think. So I think I'm just going to jump right in here, folks. We do need to thank our sponsor before we get rolling. This episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collect editions, all for up to 42% off, with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select some collected editions to briefly discuss from the InStock Trades library. Usually, it's tied into that issue in some way, shape, or fashion. This time out, I picked Betty and Veronica. I know, you're like, what? But wait, Betty and Veronica by Adam Hughes. Whoa! Trade paperback, volume one. Yeah, he wrote this. He drew it. Okay, Betty and Veronica, drawn by Adam Hughes. Come on, you know this thing's going to be incredibly gorgeous and sexy. So, it's 104 pages and normally retails for $12.99. You can get it for 30% off right now. It was only $9.09. I was reading up on it. It sounds like an absolute hoot. Sounds like a lot of fun. So be sure to check out Betty and Veronica by Adam Hughes, Trade Paperback, Volume 1. Now, Mike, this is the part of the show normally where I ask the guest if they brought an in-stock trades pick. I know you have, over the many, many years we've podcast together, you have failed to bring a pick every single time. Uh, so we can just skip right over this and move on if that's No, okay. I got one. I got one. Wow. That's, this is a first. Yeah, it, you really have to stop drinking after two. <laughs> How did you know when I started? <laughs> um, I chose Justice League Volume 4, The Grid. Uh, these amazing tales from Justice... That's that's overselling it. <laughs> I was going to say, this is the new 52, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> these amazing tales from Justice League 18 to 20 and 22 to 23 lead into Trinity War and spotlight Cyborg, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Plus, learn the secret behind Pandora's box. Oh, thank goodness. I chose this book because right there on the cover is Despera. Oh, okay. Uh, this is when they they fought him. It was written by Jeff Johns, and according to InStock Trades, it was drawn by various Ivan Reese. I know that guy. He's great. <laughs> maybe maybe it's like Ivan Reese from like across the multiverse. 
That would be phenomenal, actually. <laughs> so that's how they keep them on track. Normally, this book would set you back $16.99, but after the in-stock trade discount of 42%, you only pay $9.85. I have to say, if you're into the New 52 set, or you're going to read the New 52 Justice League, I have to say, this is a pretty good era right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to say Firestorm's probably on the team at this point. Uh, leading up to the Trinity War was a lot of fun. So yeah, these are actually really good issues. Yeah, it, it's funny. There seemed like to be the New 52 and Jeff Johns' New 52. Mm, okay. I see what you mean there. And his Justice League was very much its own kind of entity. Yeah. But, hey, they're fun comics, so that's what matters. Mm-hmm. So, folks, for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. All right. Also, folks, this episode is sponsored in part with your Patreon support because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows and hosting and all the various services, it costs a fair amount of coin. So, uh, you guys really stepped up when we needed your help and help Help support the network, and I can honestly say, without your help, we would not be on the air today. So, folks, if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, uh, the best way to support us is by visiting our Patreon at patreoncom podcast and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. And at certain tiers, you get thanked on the shows of your choice. These folks ask to be thanked on the JLI podcast. So, our love and affection, an undying respect, goes out to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis. Hey, remember that name? That might be important later. David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tol. John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Roger Preeb, Rudy Gustillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. David Ace Gutierrez, isn't he like involved with the Katana Banana? Uh, he is. He is the owner and operator. But I, you know, I, ever since the restraining order, I'm not supposed to talk about it all that much. But <laughs> once the investigation is complete and uh, the Los Angeles County Police Department have finished their investigation and uh, they get his tax returns and stuff, then we should be able to talk. Well, actually, maybe well, we you won't can't wanna... talk about it. I am under no such. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, if you want to talk about the Katana Banana, or you want to talk about this issue of Justice League America, or you want to talk about Despero or Despero, ooh, uh, go out on the social medias. Find us on JLI Podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. Use our hashtag FWPodcast. It's all about building an online community of JLI fans around the show. Now, this is part of the show normally, uh, folks, where we would talk to the guest and find out their origin with the JLI. Well, first, Mike is incredibly boring, so I'm saving you that trouble. And two, you can go back to episode two. Yeah, all the way back to episode two of this show and hear Mike's origin with the JLI and his favorite members. So check that out. For right now, though, we are going to dive in on Justice League America number 39. And you can see some of the panels from this issue, if you don't have it handy, out on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. We'll have an image gallery there. We'll post some of the issues there. But come on, folks, this thing is not hard to find. You can pick up the physical comic. You can buy a digital and comicsology. You can check it out at DC Infinite. You can buy the omnibus. There's no reason you shouldn't have your hands on this thing. Uh, so, it was published by DC Comics. Cover dated is June 1990. On the shelves, April 10th, 1990. Cover price is $1, four shiny quarters. Cover is by Adam Hughes and Joe Rubenstein. Would you care to describe the cover, Mike? Oh, it's an amazing cover. You have, I keep trying to say Despero, but it's Despero, wearing the United Nations flag as a cape, and he's throttling John Jones. And there's this devastated cityscape behind them, and Despero is looking at the reader and asking, What are you looking at? <laughs> 
It's just missing butthead, right? At the end. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What are you looking at, butthead? (laughs) I love how this tagline sort of evokes the very first issue, you know, with Guy Gardner Mm -hmm. saying, want to make something of it. It's it's a different tagline, but you definitely get the same feeling. Yeah. It's the perfect encapsulation of like the series in general. It's like high drama and action, but there's a comedy beat. I would agree with that for this story. I, I got to say, too, the inking, uh, particularly Joe Rubenstein, just made this thing gorgeous with the inking. I mean, the, now, right now, I'm, I'm looking at both the physical copy and the copy on Comixology. Preferably, I like to look at the digital version. Just the colors pop and everything. But either way, the, the lines he used are very heavy. The shading on Despro is very heavy. It just makes him look even bigger. Like, that arm, it, it's like as thick as a tree trunk, man. I mean, he just looks massive. And I think it's down to the inking. It does a great job. Yeah, Rubenstein is one of my favorite inkers of all time. I actually like his inking of Dan Jurgens on Superman slightly more than Brett Breedings. And that's Wow. That that's like that's like, you know, it's in a Superman bar that would start a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take you one worse. Uh, for me, my Dan Jurgens anchor is Art T. Bear, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. No, no. That that stuff, man, you go back to right right, right around the time of the uh, engagement. Mm. That's that's when I started reading it. That's why he's my anchor for Dan Jurgens. Yeah. But Rubenstein, he's, now he, he drops in and out through a lot of the different artists on Justice League over the years. So he's almost kind of the glue that holds the book together a lot of times because you have so many different artists in the series. Mm-hmm. I like it when you have that kind of person, no matter the era, like this person keeps popping up for some reason. Mm-hmm. It does kind of give in a time period of today where continuity means nothing. <laughs> and I'm not saying that as a shot across the bow. It's just how the art form has evolved. It's not like it was even 10 years ago, uh, which is fine. But, you know, my heart, I just remember this era because everything was connected. And when you have like different decades and seeing the same names pop up, it's, it's like it's like a warm blanket. I'm with you. Like on the Firestorm series, Roden Rodriguez uh, was the continuous inker from Pat Project to Raphael Cannon and just kept going for a long time. And he really kind of gave the a house style. Tom Palmer famously did that with Star Wars. Uh, mm-hmm. he really, Yeah, so I know exactly what you mean. But let's get into this. Let's talk about this issue. We, we can talk about other people all day long. We should do that sometime soon on a podcast, by the way. But for now, let's dive into this. So Plot and Breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus. Pencilers Adam Hughes. Inkers Joe Rubenstein. Woohoo! Letters by Bob LePan. Colorist Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, editor Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Blow Up. When do you start <laughs> us off, Mike? Uh, John stands before Despero, Despero, damn it, and Gypsy, <laughs> and flat out says there will be no more deaths today, with the possible exception of Despero's. The two trade blows, and John essentially says that he has had enough of Despero's crap. Despero is not so easily beaten, and throws John into a nearby house. John flies back, but Despero gets into John's head and makes him see the final days of Martian civilization. He also makes John see the image of Despero killing John. John's wife. which reduces John to a near catatonic state. Despero turns his attention back to Gypsy and begins to power up his third eye thingy when suddenly a green bubble covers his head and turns the power inward. Despero is like, hey, what happened? And that's when (laughs) Guy Gardner makes his presence known. Guy takes quick and decisive action and creates a construct of a seesaw, puts Despero on one end and drops a 16-ton weight on the other, flinging Despero through the air. Guy tends to Gypsy and by tens, I mean, he starts hitting on a teenage girl and really doesn't care that she's on the young side, which is creepy beyond measure. Mm. Anyways. <laughs> Taking lessons from Hal with uh, Rizia there, I think. I was about to say. Uh, <laughs> 
We've really got to have people look into that GL core. Uh, Gypsy keeps trying to tell Guy about what happened, but he's too busy being Guy. And it's only when John wakes up and gives him the sit rep on Despero that Guy starts acting somewhat human. John tells him to get to Despero and stop him no matter what. Meanwhile, the other members of the team are flying towards where John and company are, doing their usual team banter, when they spot Guy flying in the opposite direction. They change course and start following him. I'll take it from there. So Guy has flung Despero all the way into Long Island Sound. And Despero crashes into the water, and Guy floats above, taunting Despero, waiting for him to resurface. The JLI shuttle arrives, distracting Guy, which just happens to be the moment Despero leaps back into the fray. Guy and Despero crash into Midtown Manhattan, wreaking havoc. Fire, Ice, and Blue Beetle join the brawl, while Mr. Miracle, who's acting strangely, stays to pilot the JLI shuttle. Blue Beetle is out of shape and struggles with all this physical exertion. Then a flying piece of debris strikes Ice unconscious. This enrages both Fire and Guy. Guy unleashes an onslaught of emerald energy at Despero, but the alien dictator simply knocks out Guy with a blast from his third eye. Fire's done her homework and uses her fire powers to injure Despero. Recovering from her attack, Despero uses his mental powers to turn Fire's own fear against her, causing her to crash to the ground where Blue Beetle catches her at the last moment. With Beetle at Despero's mercy, the JLI shuttle heroically arrives, blasting the foe. Shockingly, Despero blasts the shuttle and apparently kills Mr. Miracle. Despero holds Blue Beetle aloft by the throat, explaining how he's about to kill him as well. Then we cut back to Martian Manhunter and Gypsy. Jean reveals the only way to stop Despero is to help him destroy the Justice League. Dun, dun, dun. Next issue, Genocide. That seriously had that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> so what do you think of the issue, buddy? This issue, when I first read it back in 97, when I was going through this run, was the moment that I absolutely fell in love with this league. Okay. Because I'd been, you know, I'd read little bits and pieces over the years, as I explained in my origin, but when I finally just read, like, from issue one all the way through, like, I was really kind of like, ah, this is funny, and ah, I love the character beats uh booster and beetle yay and guy and fire and ice how you doing (laughs) that kind of thing but when it got to this story it was just like okay so all these people that keep telling me that there was nothing but jokes have no idea what they're talking about because despero shows up despero damn it all right let's get that let's get that on the table real quick so what happened was last episode carlin and i we were all over the board and even joked about not knowing how to say the name diablo frank who actually dedicated his Martian Manhunter blog a considerable amount to covering Despero called us to task, pointing out that in Who's Who, uh, which is a comic I have a little bit of familiarity with, there's actually a pronunciation glossary that specifically tells you how to say Despero's name. So yes, it's Despero. So we will endeavor to get that correct. We, I promise you we won't, but we will endeavor to. Frank was a pedant about something. Shocking. <laughs> uh, but no, when I got to this to this storyline and this issue in particular, I was just like, holy crap. They just went from everything's kind of a joke to like a world-beating enemy that is just mowing through the league, including John, mm-hmm. who's Superman level. Just, just in sheer raw power, he's Superman level, but he also has his mental abilities as well, which kind of puts him on a different level. And to see... Despero going after Gypsy. And it's kind of cute because on the first page, she looks so happy to see John. Yeah. I mean, she's got the smile on her face and John's like, I'm going to kill you, basically. Mm -hmm. And it does not go his way. (laughs) 
Right. And I really, really liked it because suddenly anything can happen in this book. And not only can anything happen, none of these characters have their own titles. Guy's kind of in and out of Green Lantern at this point, but he doesn't have the Guy Gardner title yet. Mm-hmm. So Giffen and Demetrius have complete control over these characters. Any one of them could die in this story. And that puts it on a level that classic Justice League, as great as those stories were, never had that you're going to kill... And like Even when they did it, it was like a dream at the end. But you were never going to kill Superman in a Justice League story. You were never going to kill Batman. Following your interesting train of logic, uh, in this exact issue, the one person they do kill did have his own title. Yeah. <laughs> and that tied into why they killed him in this. Exactly. Yep. Which, no. w- which is adorable, by the way. <laughs> um, but it's just... I just really, I love this issue. I love this story. It was just, when I was reading it again, suddenly I'm 21 and back in working third shift at the Flash Foods, which is now Circle K. And thank God it wasn't a Circle K back then because I could not have taken the jokes of two o'clock in the morning. One of my friends once again saying strange things are afoot at Circle K. Just would have driven me crazy. Uh, The gag with the family of the house that John crashes into, that was funny. I love the ladies holding a rolling pin. Like, that's (laughs) going to stop all this. I I, I do want to, before we move too deep in I want to go back to one of your points about how this issue was such a stark difference from the (laughs) other parts of the series. Now, I came to the series later at issue 42, and all this was backfill for me. So I didn't read this one at the time, but I definitely filled it in. It's interesting is that, and I've been saying this since I started the podcast, is what works so well with this book is they're a family and we care about them. We laugh with them. So when, so when the drama happens, like it did last issue and this issue, it hits that much stronger because you're not ready for it. You're not, it's the very special episode that you didn't expect. And it's like, Whoa, this character that I adore because I laugh and everything, their life is in genuine jeopardy now, or somebody they care about has been killed. And it's just like, it, it hurts that much more. And it just, it makes this series more powerful than a standard punch em up comedy. I think I'll totally agree with that. And again, it's why I know people like to have the Magnificent Seven on From Crisis to Crisis. We're about to get into the Grant Morrison run, Mm. which is amazing. Don't get me wrong. I love the Grant Morrison run of JLA, but my meat and potatoes, my mac and cheese, as you would say, (laughs) is this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, man, the font in these Martian scenes is hard to read. Uh, The kind of cursive font of the boxes. Yeah. I got to get my readers out jokingly <laughs> say to me. i have the progressive lenses now mm-hmm. so i was really you know having to look down right <laughs> on my glasses <laughs> i'm not saying i know what you're talking about but i know what you're talking about <laughs> let me tell you uh a comicsology panel by panel view it's a lifesaver <laughs> uh, I, i'm just saying i am getting older so um guy is kind of badass when he shows up man his dialogue with gypsy did not age well i mean it was wasn't acceptable back then, but now? Mm. <laughs> well, okay, so, like, I, I'm trying, I'm talking off the top of my head here, so I, I good chance I'm going to say something wrong because I'm an idiot, but, like, he, absolutely what he's saying is wrong. However, he doesn't act on any of it. He doesn't take any physical action. He's hitting on her inappropriately, but it's almost like, you know, she, she's rebuffing him, and, he, and that's where it's going to end. I don't know, maybe... 
I don't know. I, I'm not thinking this through. Maybe it is completely out of line. No, I mean... He, he's being disgusting, no doubt about it, but he's totally within the template of who Guy is, I guess is what I'm trying to say. He's true to his character. Let's use a hypothetical situation. Uh-oh. Say there's two members of the Justice League, or two people that have been involved with the Justice League, right? Mm-hmm. And both of them are accused of acting inappropriately within the League. One of them, it comes out, was doing some really sketchy stuff. And the other was just being inappropriate, but it never actually hurt anybody. Guy, I think, is in the second camp. Okay. Where he's being inappropriate, and he is getting a little physical. I mean, he has to pick her up and stuff, but that's just to save her. Right, yeah, but, he didn't He didn't touch her inappropriately, I don't believe. But you're absolutely right. He's not, like, ripping her clothes off. He's not trying to get her to come back to his apartment. He's just saying really inappropriate things. Now... And he's not make, listening. Yeah, and, and, I'm, and I'm really going to make this clear. I I'm not saying that makes it okay, because it doesn't. You know, he's making her uncomfortable. Right. But I would rather this than something that you would see today or in the DC of like 10 years ago. Mm. So Yeah, I, I see what you what you mean there. So yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But yeah, I, I think Guy's being a pig, but I it's not going to go anywhere. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's basically bragging about himself more than anything. He's not talking about the stuff he's going to do to her. He's talking about how awesome he is. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I feel like his very cavalier attitude. And then there's one thing I want to point out here though there is, there's a glimmer you see of the real guy underneath the underneath the sheen there once he realizes how injured john is and once he realizes her parents are dead he, you actually see some of the real guy where he cares and he's like hey john do you want me to take you back to the embassy he actually cares and we saw this uh, a number of issues ago too when oberon was hurt mm-hmm. he got real serious and we're going to see it again later when ice gets hurt in this issue oh, yeah <laughs> but the bottom line is when somebody on guy's team gets hurt he is there for them and and it's amazing. That is the time when you see all the rest of it is a bunch of BS. And this is who he really is. He is a hero and he's going to help. And that's the kind of moments that make me go, okay, there is some redeeming value to this character. Yeah, Guy is a complicated character. And I think he's complicated in all the right ways. Uh, I think people that don't understand how to write him kind of put him in like the lecherous jerk path. Like the writer who shall not be named in the first like eight or so issues of the 1990 Green Lantern series mm-hmm. i think had a terrible outlook on guy mm. i don't see guy like you know perusing a porn shop and i never really needed to see that right <laughs> but that's what we got there whereas here like you're absolutely right once the the fit hits the sham as uh, christian slater said and pump up the volume <laughs> Guy is is there for his team. And I think with everything that's happened to Guy, the fact that he's not more of a jerk is actually kind of surprising. <laughs> when you look at his history as a character. Right, yeah. I mean, everybody has had to put up with Hal Jordan hitting on their girlfriend. <laughs> But he was, like, in a coma when it happened. So. Right, and, ha- and had to watch. Um, the running gag of Beetle wondering what's up with Mr. Miracle never got dull. It was, okay. It, it was great throughout the issue. Just like, are, are you okay? I'm okay. Oh, he's okay. And then he repeats himself again. It's like, wait. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do wonder if someone wasn't paying attention to the Mr. Miracle series, or they skipped the JLI special where all this launched from. I mean, they might actually think that Mr. Miracle was dead. Um, That was me. Okay. I have the JLI special when I read my run. Okay. So I thought, did they just kill Mr. Miracle? And then you read like who's who and stuff like that. And you re-familiarize yourself with it. But yeah, that was me back in 1997. I was just like, holy crap, they just killed Kenny. You bastards. (laughs) They also destroyed the Milton Bradley starboard at the same time, which really broke my heart. (laughs) 
But you're right. That scene when Despero knocks out Ice mm-hmm. and fires like, you hurt my friend, you miserable animal. You hurt Ice and you're going to pay for that. And Guy's just like, done. He gets taken out like two seconds later. But... <laughs> Well, there's just three word balloons stacked on top of each other. Just emphasize, he hurt ice? And then just the blast, the energy blast out of Guy's mm-hmm. ring. I mean, holy crap. Yeah, and, and just like the back half of this of this issue is Despero doing to this Justice League what Doomsday does to the next iteration. Mm. You know, he, he just he just mows all of them down. Scott supposedly dies. And because this is a J.M. DeBateas book, the conclusion, which we get next time, which I haven't read in years, but the conclusion will come down to not defeating him with fisticuffs. Right. You know, uh, I will also say the level of destruction that we see here just did not feel the same in 1997 as it feels today. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, yeah, you, you can't help but look at these things differently. Um, every time you see a building come down in the comic now, it's like, whoa. Yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, once you experience it, either through the trauma of watching it on television or the trauma of being there, Mm. which is two different experiences, I realize it, but psychologists and psychiatrists have done studies on the effects of collective trauma within a society and what that does to people. So I feel like I'm on firmer ground there. But the fact that John has that ending where it's like, I must help him destroy the Justice League is just like, oh, well, this, this is, I see kind of where you're going but this is going to be interesting because the layperson who's never read a jam damatea story before would look at that and go oh is john going to turn on the league but if you read enough jam damatea you know kind of <laughs> at least the general direction that they're going in yeah i, I couldn't remember when i reread this i had to I, I did dip ahead and read the next issue but i didn't remember what it was going to be but yeah you, you kind of figured there's going to be some sort of trick to it certainly mm-hmm. But yeah, the upping of the ante of this issue is one of the high watermarks of this entire era. And it's it's less uh, bloodthirsty, actually. Even though there's more destructiveness as far as pure destruction of cities, there's less bloodthirstiness than compared to last issue. I mean, last issue, he, you know, brutally murders Gypsy's parents. We watch it happen. I mean, we watch him rip apart steel. It's a little less bloodthirsty, but still just as violent as an impactful, I would say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, I want to mention, like, the very first page is great. The first page, you see you know, John is in the foreground, Despero's in the background, and they're facing off, and they've got that dialogue you described earlier with Gypsy on the ground. That is actually uh, a reverse perspective of the last issue's final splash page. There's mm-hmm. some, some minor differences. I actually put them here side by side so Mike and I can see them. There's some hand placement difference and some torso twisting, but the dialogue's the same, the setup's the same. It's just nice where it's like, uh, last issue, it was Despero in the foreground. This issue, it's John in the foreground. So it's it, it's very nice that Adam Hughes planned that out. Uh, it looks really n- nice when you look at them side by side. Yeah, I, uh, I prefer the pointing that John is doing, but you can just, basically, this is two seconds later. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's one of those things, right? Right, exactly. Now, the story assumes that you know what happened in uh, in the Despero saga in the Justice League Detroit era. Because Despero says, you already killed me once. I mean, they, they talk about it, and you see him there to hurt Gypsy and steal last issue, but they don't ever really get into the detail of what happened. So they're either going out a lot of faith that you know the story, or that you just, there's enough context clues here for you to figure out why Despero hates them so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, great feedback. Uh, I love how... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I love how uh, uh, John says that Gypsy means more to him than almost anyone in the world. That says mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, we know we've seen it before him and uh, Gypsy and Vixen. And maybe it's because it's his first team he led. I'm not sure. But they seem to mean more to him than just about anybody out there. I think Gypsy had the, the father-daughter thing going on with him. Probably. Uh, you know, and, and this is the first time I've read this particular story after reading the end of the Justice, the J- Justice League Detroit era with the Legends crossovers. Mm. So seeing, like, I remember her being reunited with her family. And I remember being like, that's really cool. I really like that. And then they just 90s the hell out of that, didn't they? <laughs> well, it's interesting. The same writer did both, though. Yeah. So it's not like some other writer came along and screwed him over. Right? They're both Demetrius. So. Is that better or worse? Eh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So I, I, I got some questions here that I'm trying to work through in my head. So Despero gets into John's mind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he claims to have brought John's wife back and then murders her, right? Right before his eyes. But she uses this once-in-a-lifetime power called Mayavana. And this quote, creates a reality more powerful than that which we take to be reality. Basically, she creates an illusion to make things easier for John. So here's my question is that, is all of this an illusion? Or did Despero actually bring her back to life? Which I don't think would happen. But if it's all an illusion, why would the illusionary wife have this Mayavana power that's only a once-in-a-lifetime thing? I, I don't quite get that. Um, I think it's an illusion. Okay. I, I don't think Des- Despero. Despero. Despero is the beginning. Despero is the end. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that. That's how I'm going to say that. <laughs> But no, I, I don't think he's actually brought her back. I think this is all in his mind. And and that power was more of Despero making John think that it happened. So John had that in his own mind. And through whatever Despero is able to do, he's basically been able to mimic and tap into that. You know, a good example of the shag of a couple of years ago, like... <laughs> Despero getting in your head and making you drink Diet Mountain Dew. Okay. <laughs> you know, he didn't actually make you drink the Diet Mountain Dew, but he's made you think you're drinking Diet Mountain Dew, which made you happy. <laughs> Fair enough. It's still, I don't know if that works. But. It's, it's still a pretty big ask of the reader once you really break it down. But I get it. I mean, the whole the whole real reason is the Mayavana thing. Here. It's a foreshadowing thing. That's what's really yeah. going on here. And I get mm-hmm. that. That's fine. That's that's the curse of doing these podcasts is you start breaking down the story and you have to think about it more than you really should. And that's where you start to go, oh, how does that work? Hmm, okay. Uh, this this issue, unfortunately, starts a subplot that's not one of my favorites. Maybe, I, maybe I'll like it better in this reread. I don't know. But the whole subplot about Blue Beetle being out of shape, that will continue for about a year. Uh, it's not my favorite subplot, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, and also, I, one thing that I did think was really cool is that, you know, they, they, it's clear that Blue Beetle is out of his league here. Forgive the pun. You know, you've got fire blasting and energy and guys shooting all this energy and Despero. And then there's Blue Beetle, who's just a guy running around. But when Despero's choking him, he says, uh, quote, though you are physically the weakest link, your mind is second in strength only to the Martians. That's quite a compliment to Blue Beetle about how powerful his mind is. Now, I don't know if that includes Batman. I mean, Despero certainly struggled with him. But certainly, uh, that's a, that is a quite a compliment to Ted. I did not have as much of the problem that you did with Beetle gaining weight. I think it was them playing against comic book types. You mm-hmm. never see these characters go to seed, basically. Uh, and he just stopped extra exercising. So right. he was putting on a little weight and it leads to a really kind of interesting confrontation with Guy. But Ted is the smartest one there. Ted created the Beetle. Right. Ted created all of his tech. He is a genius. 
So he would have a strong mind. I think if Batman was there, it, it'd be like a three, you know, it, he, he'd be like number three. But with the group that Despero is fighting, yeah, he's number two. Well, it's sad because Ted doesn't usually get that chance to shine in mm-hmm. the series very often. Because, yeah, it, it, we forget what he was really like in his own series because here he's just hilarious. So, yeah. Uh, I got a compliment to fire here. You know, she is really great in this in this particular issue. She fights Despero. She indicates that she's read the JLA case files on him, and she knows how to hurt Despero, and she does. And then she uses her energy form to her advantage. It was just very, very smart, and it's a nice reminder how competent Fire is because we don't see that all that often. But I mean, she's a former Secret Service agent, basically, and, yep. you know, government spy. She's fantastic in battle. Yeah, Fire, unfortunately, especially with the way Adam Hughes draws her, it's, it's it's easy to forget. It's like, she's more than just a pretty face. There's so many I, jokes there that I'm trying to behave myself with. I, I admire your restraint, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so since we're talking about the, the artwork, let's get into that. So, like, first of all, this thing is absolutely gorgeous every mm-hmm. single panel. Adam Hughes, this is Adam, this is peak Adam Hughes. I mean, just unbelievably beautiful. The inking is amazing. You know, just everything. Like, you know, I, I got some different particular panels to point out. Page seven, panel four, where March Manhunter's on the ground and he's drooling mm-hmm. after Despero's blast him in the brain. I mean, so powerful. Then, since we're talking about fire, I like this one. On page 11, when they're inside the shuttle and it's flying along, pa- panel two, fire is just reclining on the couch. She is just chilling out. And what I love about that is it. Re- this is Adam Hughes' master. It's conveying that relaxed pose because the League just doesn't worry about dangerous situations because they, first of all, rarely encounter them. And mm-hmm. most everything they do, they treat like a joke. So it, it makes a really good juxtaposition against how truly deadly the situation ends up being. So I love to see that where fire is all chilling and then it all goes, you know, blows up in her face, basically. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the, uh, not the pig, because I'm going to be tasteful about it. I love this outfit for ice. Yeah. I've always loved this outfit for ice. I think it does more to be sexy. Mm-hmm. in having her basically covered from head to toe than if it if she had like the invisible woman midriff exposed thing going on okay that that shirt over the outfit just brings it all together and uh, you know adam hughes is doing a little cheesecake here because you know we're getting a prominent look at a rear end but i just i just agree with you that everybody everybody in this book looks great yeah everybody <laughs> And, and, you know, you're not being a pig because, I mean, you're just complimenting an attractive woman and the way she's drawn. And the fact is, Adam Hughes does this with all the characters. The men are beefcakey to, to the ninth. You know, they're mm-hmm. hot, they're sexy as well. So it, he does this. He's an equal opportunity sexual exploiter. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that Ice looks gorgeous because she does. But you know what? Blue Beetle, even though he's out of shape, he looks pretty hot, too, the way this, the costume fits him. You know, Marsh Manhunter without a shirt on, that's a hunk of hunk of man right there, too. So Adam Hughes just draw sexy people is what it boils down to. A hunk of hunk of burning John. <laughs> Did I say burning? Oops, I shouldn't no, say No, I'm saying burning. Oh, okay. uh, I'm just, I'm making a joke. Gotcha. Uh, let me know when it gets funny. So on page 14, uh, I love the first panel. Yeah, that was that was funny right there. When the shuttle's getting ready to... Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, thank you for letting me know. <laughs> <laughs> on page 14, when, the, when they're in the shuttle and they're watching 
Nespro crash into New York City, and you see, you know, Scott's face looks horrified. Beetle looks like he's actually looks a little bit like he's going to the bathroom. But anyway, uh, Ice looks terrified. Fire looks very focused. Either way, it's just gorgeous. And you know, this book was founded on Kevin McGuire drawing faces, and mm-hmm. this just shows you how amazing uh, uh, Adam Hughes is at faces as well. It just looks great. Yeah, it's that way throughout the issue, though. Everybody's expressive. Yeah, you know, you, you've got Guy being angry. You've got Blue Beetle being shocked. You know, it's just Adam Hughes, you know, has... I don't think he gets enough credit for his his um, sequential artwork. That's fair. Yeah. As he does with his pinups and his covers and such. Well, we do have to acknowledge the breakdowns were by Giffen. So I don't know that we can totally judge the sequential here. Uh, but it's more than just pinups, though. You're right. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many just little things going on, little tiny touches that are fantastic, whether someone did the breakdowns for him or not. Uh, he, there's a lot more to Adam Hughes than just sexy pinups. You're right. And I'm glad you pointed out uh, the, the shocked face on Beetle on page 21 when Scott gets, you know, when the shuttle blows up and he's just screaming Scott. I mean, that's powerful. I mean, you feel that in your gut, like, oh. And then this is interesting. Interesting too. There's just the weird stuff you notice when you're working on a podcast. Page 17, when Despero's blasting Guy, there's like a weird simple in his blast uh, that takes out Guy. It looks almost like the little thing he used to stick in the middle of a 45 to put it on the record player. But um, it's it's very strange. And uh, because of that, when it starts, it's kind of at a high pitched, and then as it gets lower, it goes to a more normal sound. If you're going to go with uh, <laughs> with that, that's a nerdy joke. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I, I was with you. The whole way, sadly. <laughs> uh, I, I see that and I hear whoop, 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 whoop. Yes, same here. Same here. <laughs> well, the whole issue is absolutely gorgeous. The story, it just keeps ramping up and ramping up. I mean, he's just taking out Guy. He's just taking out Fire. He's taking out Ice. All that's left is Blue Beetle and Martian Manhunter. And, you know, it's where's this going to go next? It's just, it it demands that you read the next issue. Uh, it, you can't help but want to. It's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I, I completely agree. I love that it ends just on John's eye. Mm. I mean, extreme close-up. But, you know, John on that last page looks kind of like a Luke McDonald drawing almost. I was noticing that John looks – because his, his forebrow isn't creating shadowing on his eyes. It's the light is coming from beneath him. So it looks very different, yeah. It looks mm. also a little bit uh, Tom Mandrake-ish. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely, especially yeah. with the shading. Interesting. Well, the only thing – before we start talking in general, I do want to mention – in the letters page uh, on the physical copy. It's sort of funny. Uh, this has to do with Justice League Europe, which is what we're going to cover in a minute, but then the extremist storyline. In the call-out box that talks about other issues on the shelves, it mentions Justice League Europe number 15. It says the extremist story is a three-issue interdimensional epic. Then the house at on the same page calls it a four-part epic. And then in reality, we know it's five parts. So clearly they didn't really know where the extremist story was going to go at that point. So it's worth mentioning. There was a letter in here that caught my eye. Uh, from Charles Skaggs of Orlando, Florida. By the way, did I mention I'm a charter member of the newly formed Maxwell Lord Fan Club, whose address is Innovative Concepts? And he gives it an address. If there are any who recognize the need for Max in the universe, they are encouraged to write us for some free propaganda. I want to get that group together today. And have like a really long conversation with them. (laughs) I'm sure they're probably just as unhappy as you are. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how do you guys feel? And it's just like suddenly it's like all the people in life of Brian that are just <laughs> all angry and upset. 
So overall, I think this is a phenomenal issue. What do you think of it, Mike? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was just beginning to end. It it had you going. Like I said, the only thing that slowed me down, because I wasn't reading panel to panel, highfalutin. I bought this on Comixology. Uh, Suck it. I, I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, but... <laughs> You know, just just starting off with John getting taken out, you got Guy, you know, getting into the fray, then the league. It just builds and builds and builds and builds and has this great, like, kind of cliffhanger ending. I think it's stories like this that are sort of the glue that makes the comedy work. Because mm-hmm. it, it, it's the comedy, comedy, holy crap, you know, and, and you really are worried, and then back to comedy. And I just think it, I think it works. So it reminds me of that Happy Days episode where the Fonzie's garage blew up, and I was convinced that Fonzie died. I mean, it made, it, it's, it's a really bad analogy, but. And where the restaurant burned down, and. It's, that's when you're, when the, when the crap got real on your comedy, and suddenly you were worried. So that happens. All right. Well, Mike, let's break this down, folks, because this is the part where we're going to nominate the Quahaha Award. This is where we pick the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Mike will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Mike, this is not the most Bwahaha-ish issue. There are some no. funnies in here, thankfully, but not a lot. So what do you got for your Bwahaha Award? Oh, the, the, the woman with the rolling pin and the, the guy complaining about the, the roof okay. earlier in the issue. I, 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 I LOL'd at that. Okay, that's a good one. The, the rolling pin is what makes that work for me. I like that one a lot. My pick was different. Uh, it was on page 11, which is when uh, our heroes are showing up in the JLI shuttle, and they're flying along, and Beetle goes, Raider's picking up a small object heading in our direction, can't get her clear reading, but it should be coming up alongside us right now. And Despero goes flying by the ship. And uh, Mr. Miracle's like, what was that? Beetle's like, whatever it is, it's not our problem. We've got our own orders. Find John to hook up with Guy. And at that moment, Guy goes flying by. What I love about this is it's the two-panel setup. There's a panel of the shuttle going one direction and Guy going the other. And the next panel, the shuttle's going the exact opposite direction, chasing Guy, going, now that's our problem. Trying to explain this verbally is not going well for me. But uh, it'll be on the image gallery. You can see it. It's I think it's a hilarious bit where the shuttle has to uh, has obviously done a U-turn in the air to chase after Guy. Now we got to decide which moment is funnier. Well, loath as I am to say when we're recording uh, that you're right about something. Because God knows you don't need that for your ego. <laughs> I do. I do. Feed it. Feed it. I'm just I'm just saying. Uh, I think you're... I think you're right... <laughs> is it burn? Is it yeah, burn? It's, it's, it, 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 yeah, I'm, yeah, it's like Fonzie saying wrong. So. <laughs> right, okay, fair enough. I, I was willing to go back and forth about the rolling pin bit, because I do like it, but I really do think this is the funny moment of the issue with with the mm-hmm. shuttle, so, all right, well then, we will, we will award the coveted Wahaha Award to, I guess it goes to Beetle and Scott, uh, or the Scott Android, for flying the shuttle and doing the U-turn in the air. Congratulations, guys, uh, for the Wahaha award please wear it with pride is as tangible as the laughter we give you <laughs> now mike i need to ask a favor uh, okay would you mind pitching in and helping up uh oh you need some money again <laughs> would you mind pitching in and helping clean up rockefeller center uh despero and guy just smashed right through the uh, skating rink area and in about 16 years the tv show 30 rock is really gonna need this area cleaned up so they can film their opening credits do you mind helping out you know for tina fey's sake <laughs> anything for tina fey <laughs> <laughs> i knew what leverage to use <laughs> 
Don't worry, Mike. We will bring you back for the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 15th issue of Justice League Europe. Did you know that Michael Bailey hosts a podcast? Yeah, I host or co-host a number of podcasts, actually. Did you know that Michael Bailey releases his podcast through the dark web? Now, that's not true at all. I release my shows on the regular internet. I don't even know how to get to the dark web. Did you know that Michael's financing comes from shady donors who make up a cabal of people that like to kick puppies and kittens? What are you talking about? I'm pretty much self-financed outside of a modest Patreon that I produce no extra content Did you know that Michael Bailey supports free podcasts for everyone and also works on his shows with potential foreign spies and anarchists? Of course I support free podcasts for everyone. And Andy isn't a spy of any kind. Bethany and Allison are hardly anarchists. And Jeff... Okay, you may have me there. Jeff is a little out there. Why would you support such a man by listening to his podcast? All right, that's enough of that. Can we, can we get rid of creepy voice guy? He, he's not working out. He really just isn't. You can't get rid of me that easily. I'm a scary voice that is meant to frighten people into... Okay, okay, that's that's better. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I run the Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. The Fortress is a collection of podcasts that I either host or co-host, all housed in a single place to make things easier on... me. The shows in the network include From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I host with Jeffrey Taylor, and is all about the Superman books published between 1986 and 2006. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show, which is a Batman podcast that is about Batman stories hardly anyone talks about that I host with Andrew Leyland. Views from the Long Box, my comics-centric podcast that has been online since 2007. And the newest show on the network, The Superman and Lois Tapes, which I host with Allison and Bethany and is all about the CW series Superman and Lois. The network can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com, which also houses one of the web's largest repositories of information on the death and return of Superman from 1992 and 1993. You can subscribe to any of these programs through Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or through your favorite podcatcher, either a la carte or through the Master Feed, which has all of the episodes of all of the shows. The Fortress and its shows are also on Spotify if you're into that sort of thing. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. Doing my best to relieve boredom since 2007. The music on this trailer, Delay Rock, and Political Action Ad are by Kevin McLeod and are used under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Did you know? Oh, shut up! And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 15.
We're back from break, and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. This guest dedicated his life to science and helping people by going on to become a doctor. Though, to be honest, I'm pretty sure he just did it because of his desperate devotion to Doctor Who and wanting to be called The Doctor. Also, this guest very cleverly bribed me to be on this podcast. They've single-handedly cataloged every single Bwahaha Award, every single one of the ones we've given away since the show started. That's right, this guest has cracked the code to getting on this show, which is appeal to my ego. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Dr. Chris Lewis. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Chris. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? Ah, uh, Paris in the springtime. What could be lovelier? You see, what Paris has, Shag, it has an ethos, a life. It has a spirit all of its own. Like a wine, it has it has a bouquet. <laughs> and if you get that particular Doctor Who reference, well, you're just as ancient as I am. <laughs> I think uh, probably the only appropriate response to that uh, to you would be to say something like, Paris has no call to be here. The art lies in the fact that it is here. Exquisite. <laughs> Absolutely exquisite. Ah, <laughs> uh, touche. We could talk about Doctor Who for a long time, you and I, but that's not what we're here for. No, not at all. So, all right, folks, I'm not kidding. Chris has maintained a spreadsheet, a Google sheet. And by the way, it's in the show notes. Every episode, it's in the show notes. So you should click and go and check it out. And this thing's taken on a life of its own. He doesn't just say what won the Bwahaha Award. He sits there and catalogs how we argued, you know, how many times I caved, you know, uh, my uh, <laughs> lack of immaturity. I mean, it's really quite a thing to behold. You've cataloged something like 60 plus awards. You cataloged the time of the award. I mean, it's got to be maddening. What brought you to do that? Well, a lot of my work is data driven and hey, who doesn't want to know who's won the Bwahaha Award? It's important stuff. <laughs> I like that you maintain a leaderboard because I like to go out there and check to see if I'm in the winning. Right now, at least according to the most recent leaderboard, I'm slightly ahead of the guests. So that again, appeals to my ego. Yeah, I'm a little bit behind on my homework as we record. So that might have changed. But yeah, it's I know you would would like to know exactly where you are. I can see how competitive you are. Wait, wait. You're telling me you're not up to date? Uh, there's a couple I'm behind on. But I, in my defense, I have been a little bit busy. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for coming. Uh, we'll see you next month. <laughs> a little bit busy with what? Like an uh, uh, international pandemic or something? Dr. Lewis? Something like that. It's a little bit like the Teasdale imperative, just not quite as many zombies. <laughs> Uh, so have you found Simon Stagg, the man responsible for it yet? Because we're all would like to know. Oh, I think the FBI are on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, obviously, uh, knowing our Twitter experiences, we have a lot of overlapping fandoms and a lot of overlapping yeah. history. Uh, before the show started, we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about our Doctor Who fandom as children. So let, let me ask you, specific to this, to Justice League International, what is your origin story with the JLI? How did you find it and what made you fall in love with it? So American comics weren't that easy to get hold of in the UK when I was growing up. And my parents weren't particularly enthusiastic about us reading comics anyway, because they thought they were inferior to proper books. And for most of the time, that didn't matter because my brother and I were both voracious readers. I was telling you that we could devour several Target Doctor Who novelizations a day, given half a chance. <laughs> but occasionally we would come across a copy of a Green Lantern or a Flash when we went on holiday. And somewhere along the way, I managed to pick up a couple of issues of that 1989 Aquaman miniseries by Giffen and Robert Lauren Fleming and Kurt Swan. And I was familiar with the concept of the Justice League through the Super Friends cartoon that showed here on Saturday mornings. But it wasn't until I went to university that I discovered these things called comic shops. Mm. And Cardiff had a branch of 
Forbidden Planet. And it was there that I really discovered and indulged my love of DC. And it was about this kind of time. So I started with Green Lantern, which was just into the tail end of its relaunch story with MD Bright on art duties. And that quickly expanded to books like JLA, JLE, Flash, that elongated man miniseries and Books of Magic from Vertigo. But I think it was the Armageddon 2001 crossover and the breakdown storyline that ran across the Justice League books. And those really cemented my love of DC, introduced me to a huge number of characters I never knew existed. And Justice League remained on my pull list right up until the time when I pulled back from buying floppies with the new 52. I bought A New Beginning. That was the very first trade paperback I ever bought. And over the years, I went back and picked up all the back issues of JLE, JLA, JL Quarterly, and the annuals and the times and the specials. So yeah, Wahaha League is definitely in my find your joy sweet spot. That's fantastic. Oh my gosh. I So much overlap there. And hey, there's there's a proof for everyone. They always uh, argue whether crossovers brought in new readers or not. Armageddon 2001 and Breakdowns brought you in uh, as a committed reader. So clearly they yeah. work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and I guess it's that old truism, you know, every issue is somebody's first. And so even though you're looking through going, who are these people? I now know they are the Titans, but I had no concept of the Teen Titans before that. So, you know, it's all good. And, you know, that new beginning trade paperback, there's something magical about it. I've got it myself. And uh, yeah. that, it's actually the first way I ever read issues one through seven. And it's just those early, early DC trade paperbacks when they really didn't know what they were doing with their trade paperback collections. They were just, <laughs> you know, taking a, a whim. I think that one in Death in the Family were like the only two that you, know, you could find forever. Again, it sits on my shelf still. And there's just something magical about reading it in that format. I love it. Yeah, I agree. Great introduction. Oh, yeah. Well, tell you what, folks, let's get into this issue because we have a lot to discuss. This is a big turning point for Justice League here, I'd say, uh, as things get dark and get serious. Now, interesting, you know, that we have both Justice League America and Justice League Europe pretty serious this month. So here we go. Justice League Europe, number 15 from DC Comics, cover dated June 1990, on the shelves May 1st, 1990. Oh, this is the month I graduated from high school. Wow, look at that. Cover price, $1 <laughs> for Shiny Quarters. Covered by Bart Sears and Joe Rubenstein. Dr. Lewis, would you be so kind as to describe the cover? It was 50p in the UK, if anybody's interested. This cover, <laughs> so many lines. So many lines. We and the heroes of the JLE are staring down the mouth of what you might reasonably think is a boom troop, although actually mm. it's a dimensional portal to the devastated world of Angle. Emerging from the Rift are five strange characters, and this is our very first glimpse of the terrorist group who we will come to know as the extremists. Dr. Diehard, Lord Havoc, Gorgon, whose writhing, segmented, dreadlock tentacles explode out of the rift, giving us a sense of depth perspective. Tracer and creepiest of them all, Dream Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I didn't even notice till you mentioned it. Gorgon's tentacles and how they are used to specifically create depth. That's really an interesting observation. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, this isn't my most favorite cover of all time. The line work is quite heavy and it's busy and it, it doesn't really do the overall image any favors. The colors are a bit drab and having the JLE in shadow in the extreme foreground and facing away from us doesn't really seem to help much. Yeah, all right. So I'll, I'll share something. So uh, folks, we've talked to, uh, 
in previous episodes here about how a lot of the issues were pulled from Comixology and DC Universe and stuff like this. I happened to buy this issue digitally on Comixology before it got pulled. So I actually still have access to it. And I'm looking at the digital copy right now. And they really, really cleaned up this cover a lot. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, the, when I post it on the gallery this time, guys, I'll use the digital version uh, of this cover so you can see the difference. The line work, I mean, there's still a lot of lines. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> It's the 90s, and it's extreme. It's right on the cover. It says extremist, but line's not so heavy, and the colors have a lot lighter touch. So I would say the cover pops a lot more in the digital version. But still, um, you know, like one of the things about this is, even though these guys look very dangerous, without the cover copy, you know, this says they've already destroyed one world. Now they're gunning for ours, introducing the extremists. Without that cover copy, you don't really know that these guys are super duper dangerous. It's just five yeah. people running at you. They don't look friendly, but you right. don't know quite how deadly. <laughs> they are yeah exactly so and this is one of those cases where i feel like the cover copy is actually necessary so the other thing that's really nice is that i think this is the first time that blue jay is portrayed as part of the team hmm. but it's slightly strange because even though he's colored bright blue and even though he's right in the middle of the cover it's actually quite difficult to see him because he's got his back to us and all you can really see is the blue wings and his uh, tight buns so uh, <laughs> it's nice to see him as part of the team bit of an odd way to show it uh interesting you know in preparation for this episode, I was reading through your notes. I never even noticed Blue Jay was on this cover until I saw this comment in your notes. I was like, what? Where's Blue Jay? What? I mean, actually, <laughs> even though I'm reading, you know, I'm looking at the cover, I'm reading your notes. It still took me a little while to find him. I'm like, I'm still not seeing him. Where is he? Where is he? Oh, he's right underneath the Justice League Europe logo. So I, yeah. I didn't even know he was there. Yeah, I think that that speaks to the busyness of this cover that actually a central character is really hard to find. Yeah. Overall, there, there's a lot to love about the cover, but I'm, I'm with you. It's not my favorite and it it demonstrates they're dangerous but i, I think it's i don't know I, I, it, it's missing something to make it really a, one of those exceptional covers that bart has uh, developed in the past yeah i agree better ones to come i think yes. in this story as well yeah and, and i do love that it's right there on front street welcome to the 90s and it's extreme i mean they knew <laughs> the era they got it <laughs> yeah all right let's get inside plot and breakdowns by keith giffen script by gerard jones penciler bart sears inker pablo marcos letterer bob lapan colorist gene d'angelo assistant editor kevin dooley and editor andy helfer the story is called the it's a long one the extremist vector part one king of the dust. You want to start us off? Of course. The planet of Angor is in a bit of a state. Buildings have been reduced to rubble. Iron girders like bent and exposed, forming aerial highways for the burgeoning rats population. Advertising hoardings have fallen to the ground, propped up at wacky angles. And fortuitously, this one just happens to display the title of this issue's story, Kings <laughs> of the Dust. And sorry to be the one to break this to you, dear listener, but all human life on Angor has been exterminated. The end. All right. Oh, well, no, well, no, wait. Oh, Not there's more? Quite all human life. Look, over yonder, as a solitary figure staggers her way through the radioactive dust of a dead civilization. It's our old friend, the Silver Sorceress, a former champion of this world who returned to Angor in issue 12 of JLE. And right now, that does not seem like the most well-considered decision she could have made. <laughs> In her delirious and distressed state, she takes in all the horror of her fallen world, sweats profusely from radiation sickness, and soliloquizes about how long it will take the ferocious fallout to end her life too. A stray newspaper blows past on a gust of breeze, the headline reminding us of how the leaders of Angor refuse to submit to the crazed demands of the extremists' super-terrorist group. Yes, these were the maniacs who unleashed the destruction 
destructive power of Angor's entire nuclear stockpile in one final fatal attack. Elsewhere on Angor, we discover the extremists' supervillain hideout perched on rocky cliffs overlooking an unnamed ocean. It's as if Gaudi, Geiger and Escher had a drunken bet to design the weirdest looking building ever. <laughs> All domes and spikes and flying buttresses. Then, for no good reason, they added a diving board. And then they painted the whole thing salmon pink. It is, in short, an architectural monstrosity. <laughs> and speaking of monstrosities, inside, the extremists are boasting, bickering and beating the living snot out of one another. Their psychopathic tendencies and powerful egos make for less than harmonious team dynamics. And they are particularly pissed off when one of their number, Tracker, accidentally kills the last remaining Angorian, who they were keeping imprisoned solely for the purpose of recreational torture. Before Lord Havoc snaps his neck in retribution, Tracker sniffs the air and senses the presence of the Silver Sorceress on the planet and uh, Dream Slayer, who appears to share some kind of mystical psychic bond with the Sorceress, confirms Tracker's suspicions. Meanwhile, back on Earth, our newly escaped jailbird, Blue Jay, seeks asylum at the JLI's Moscow Embassy. Over a comforting mug of strong Russian tea, the embassy staff, Boris Dmitrovich and twins Rosa and Dana make separate arrangements. KGB plant Boris phones his masters at the Kremlin to tell them that Blue Jay is on the run and is ensconced inside the embassy. Rosa contacts the JLA. Unfortunately, our American friends have popped out for, I don't know, ice cream or a big old fight with Despero or something, leaving handyman Kilowog behind as their answering service. He redirects Rosa's call to the JLE at the Paris embassy, but not before the two appear to form a fast but mutual long-distance attraction. Mm-hmm. Over in Paris, Dimitri is delighted to have been reunited with his family. The kids are being entertained by Wally, and Dimitri and his wife seize the opportunity for some conjugal time. <laughs> Wally, meanwhile, is showboating, playing table tennis against himself at both ends of the table to the complete exclusion of the Pushkin kids. But the Flash is halted in his tracks by the appearance of Power Girl in her brand new costume, which hugs her figure in places where hands would get slapped. True to form, Flash's thoughts quickly turn to the inappropriate and equally true to form Kara threatens to rip his eyes out of their sockets if he doesn't stop with his gawping when Rosa's call comes in everyone is summoned to the monitor room to hear her report and based on the news Captain Atom instructs Metamorpho to teleport over to the Moscow embassy immediately when he arrives Boris is discovered holding a suspicious looking shoebox and seems to be trying to make excuses to Rosa and Dana for something he's done Metamorpho asks what's occurring and Boris attempts to fob Rex off with some fee story that the situation has been dealt with and not to worry about it. But Rex demands to know exactly what he's got inside the box. Back on Angor, the extremists have caught up with the Silver Sorceress and they beat her mercilessly. Dream Slayer reads her mind and uncovers a spell that will open the portal to the other dimension, following the psychic link back to Blue Jay and to the Earth. Back in Moscow, Metamorpho has liberated Blue Jay from the box the Russians had imprisoned him in. While Rex argues with the Russian JLI Embassy Chief Boris, a bright flash signals the arrival of the extremists on Earth in a full-page splash. 
the extremist Trap Blue Jay, and Battle Metamorpho. Rex holds his own pretty well, but against five powerful foes, Rex is eventually incapacitated. Once the extremists realize Rex is part of a superhero team, they concoct a way to send Metamorpho's teammates a nasty little message. Now, back in Paris, Captain Adam, Catherine Colbert, and Sue Dibney are concerned as Metamorpho hasn't checked in. Rex is normally really reliable about these things. Well, the teleporter hums, and Metamorpho collapses out of the teleporter, a bloody mess. And he says, Hey, guys, I, uh, I think we've got a situation here. <laughs> the extremist nasty little message is pretty clear. The Justice League is their next target. To be continued. Da, 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 da. You better believe it. So actually, I got to wonder in hindsight, I, I think we've got a situation here. I wonder if, if, if we look back at the history, is that the JLE kind of catchphrase? Because I want to say they use that same sort of line for the Teasdale imperative. But I don't know. We'll have to, Ooh, we'll have to watch for that. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think of the issue? Yeah, it's a great opener, isn't it? What oh, a yeah. start. What a start. I think this is one of the JLE's best stories for my money, actually. I, I really like this one. It's got real sense of stakes the extremists show in this issue that they are really formidable foes the way they beat both the silver sorceress and metamorpho within an inch of their lives they're not messing about these guys are dangerous and you see it in the fights and you see it in blue jay's reaction yeah they definitely did a great job introducing these characters as something to fear now i don't know that yeah. we necessarily understand all their powers like especially like dr diehard i don't know that they ever specifically tell you that is magnetism things like that Mm. I mean, Tracer, or, or you, you called him Tracker. Uh, I suppose it could be pronounced oh. that with the C. It could be. Um, Sorry. Oh, no, I, I've always said Tracer. A tracker makes a lot more sense, actually. So it could be a hard C. Uh, either way, uh, you know, he's pretty obvious as like the savage guy. And you've got mm-hmm. Dream Slayer, who, uh, <laughs> who's clearly magical. But I mean, other than that, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of power that we don't know what they do. So they, they establish them as scary and powerful and a real legitimate threat. But yeah. I'm not sure that we know what they can do yet. So, but yeah, I, I agree with you though. This story definitely stands out as one of the more memorable from the JLE. It's the first time they introduced a really uh, a threat level that was, you know, worthy of the Justice League. Yeah. And it's also nice that they've sort of got a focus on Silver Sorcerers and Blue Jay. Because again, this was kind of the time I was getting in. And uh, around breakdowns, those guys were very much established as part of the team. So it's nice to see that they've been brought into the team fully, even though they've been hinted at through lots of different issues all the way through the run. This is where they get to be part of the team proper. Well, let me ask you, since we're talking about Blue Jay and Silver Sorcerers and Extremists, for those of you who aren't aware or you're just listening, you didn't read the issues, whatever, all these characters are actually Marvel analogs. So uh, the champions of Angor, who were, who were introduced you know, way back in the, I think it was the 70s or late 60s, uh, in Justice League America, were specifically designed to be Avengers analogs. And we talked about that in, like I think, the second episode of this podcast uh, when they, when they yeah. appear here. And the champions of Angor were Avengers, essentially. So Blue Jay is supposed to represent Yellow Jacket or Hank Pym. And Silver Sorceress is supposed to represent Scarlet Witch. Well, this is the first time we've met the extremists. So this is actually a creation of the Justice League Europe book. Specifically, Lord Havoc is an analog for Doctor Doom. Doctor yep. Diehard is an analog for Magneto. Gorgon is an analog for Doctor Octopus. Tracer or Tracker is an analog for Sabretooth. And Dream Slayer is an analog for Dordam. I can never say this guy's name. Dormammu. And uh, I didn't actually, I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't know this. When I was reading Justice League Europe, I had no idea that any of these were analogs. Didn't have a yeah. clue. I just took them at face value. So uh, where, where I'm going with this as a question for you is that the extremists are really, really obviously it's Barsiers. They're extremely well rendered. And they look yeah. really freaking awesome. But they never took on a life of their own at DC. Uh, maybe Lord 
Havoc, arguably. We talk about that later. But I wonder, did the fact that they were analogs to Marvel hold them back? Like, did maybe, did that prevent people from wanting to use them? Any <laughs> any thoughts on that? It, it didn't hold them back at Marvel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess they're kind of tied to this world, aren't they? And, and uh, am I allowed to spoil that I'm talking a little bit about Lord Havoc later on? I mean, I think they're tied to this this idea that there's there's another world within the DC universe, which is clearly a sort of parody or tribute or a recognition of these characters. And they're, they're Marvel, but they're slightly kind of skewed so that there's no copyright infringement. But you can see where they're going with it. So I, I think they probably work within within that context of being a world which is marvelesque. I don't know. I think I think if I was going to go for one of the characters, which I think probably has got more legs than the other, it's probably my least favorite Dream Slayer. <laughs> because he's got that that sort of mystical thing which you could you could maybe slightly disassociate from the rest of the the, the Marvel kind of stuff. But um yeah I'd I'd love to see them used as well. I mean they're definitely dangerous. They're definitely a threat. And you know I could see um dr fate going up against dream slayer maybe so i have a i have a confession to make when i read these way way back in the day at first now i think i figured out eventually but at first i thought dream slayer's face instead of being like a giant energy concoction i, I thought it was like a giant flower um oh, okay. <laughs> which is embarrassing but if you look at it you might be able to see what i'm talking about yeah uh, it's for those that don't know it's his what is in place of dream slayer's head is sort of a cross between a firework exploding and an amoeba Hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's got sort of tendrils of energy coming out from a central explosion. But yeah, I, I'm going to put it to you, Shag. I think Dream Slayer is DC's creepiest villain. I think he's dark and he's cold and heartless. His costume is weird. He's got this sort of ragged cape and these really horrible kind of segmented gloves, which make his fingers look like chicken's feet. And he's got this big belt, which comes up under his rib cage. And oh my God, I'm auditioning for a hot man. <laughs> well, is he hot or not? Uh, not. He's cold, <laughs> cold as ice. You know, it kind of, it kind of, <laughs> it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Eclipso redesign. A little mm. bit that would happen a couple of years after yeah. this. Now Giffen was associated with both, so I don't know if maybe I had in this costume too. I don't know. Or, yeah. or oh wait, Sears designed both. Duh. What am I thinking? Of course, uh, Bart Sears yes, did the redesign of that and this. That's yeah. that's where the connection is. Yeah. Now, I, I to back up your claim of creepiness. Uh, look on page five. And it's the uh, fifth panel. All I could say is elbows. And yeah, that, that alone makes Dream Slayer super creepy to me. Oh, yeah. His whole body is kind of elongated. It's like it's been when it was pulled through the rift. So all the other extremists were mutated by nuclear radiation, but not Dream Slayer. He was pulled through into a dark dimension. And it's almost like that pulling through sort of extruded his whole body. Everything is too long. And it's just ugh, really horrible. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Those elbows are gross. Things of nightmares. That is not a normal elbow. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, Shag, that you like this new Power Girl uniform. I do. And I do. This era of Jelly was the first time I encountered Power Girl. So I have a real soft spot for the yellow and white costume. And I think I've heard you mention that this could be thought of as silver and gold as opposed to yellow and white. And I love that idea. Although I think they could have made more of it because... Because there's nobody better in comics than portraying metallic surfaces than Bart Sears. Well, and where some of that came from was the who's who entry 
uh, the, the Loose Leaf specifically, for Power Girl, done about six months after this issue. It was drawn by Bart Sears. And uh, he did put a lot of extra lines on it, and it sort of hints that maybe it's metal. Uh, looking at it now, really thinking about it, it's probably not what Sears was going for. I think Sears just, you know, does a lot of lines is what it is. And, and also, I've gotten some distance from the time when I, I was professing that it should be silver and gold, and now I'm actually coming back around. And I think okay. white makes more sense uh, simply as a tribute to her traditional costume, you know, because she always uh-huh. had the white. That was one of the things that made Power Girl really stand out was that she had a white costume, and that was very rare in comics for a superhero to have like an all-white costume. So actually now, yeah. I've flipped positions. I still love this costume, but that I think white it actually works better than uh, than silver. Listen to you like you know something about who's who. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, I have to tell you, I read an article, which we'll reference just a bit, about Power Girl, which Jerry Conway was going on and on talking about how the white was so uh, strong on Power Girl that made me realize, oh yeah, actually white makes more sense. Now, yeah. I, I do want to I, I want to stop Keith G. Baker and, and all you people in the comments in your tracks. Yes, I know no, this is not the traditional Power Girl costume. Yes, I know everyone loves the traditional Power Girl costumes more. I get it. I hear you. I love this costume. I just do. I'm I'm not necessarily saying it's better than her traditional costumes, but if you got to give Power Girl a different costume, I think this one's phenomenal. Uh, I think it, I think it looks great. You you talk about it for a bit, and then I'll then I'll chime in with my thoughts. I completely agree. This was my first Power Girl costume, and it's the one I really love. I th- I keep coming back to this one. It's so of its time. It reminds me of Working Girl. You know, that kind of <laughs> 80s power bob swept to the side. Those Melanie Griffith, right? Earrings. Yeah, we, we were talking about the collar. Here it's a kind of popped collar, but later on it goes on to be kind of a cowl collar. And yeah, okay, it's it's figure hugging, but it's it's pretty chaste. It doesn't show too much flesh, although I have to say in my floppy edition, there is a coloring error where parts of the white are colored as flesh. So there is quite a bit of side boob, mostly because there's quite a bit of boob. <laughs> <laughs> Comic artists at this point were performing more breast enhancements than plastic surgeons were, and not just on the women. So it is sexy, I think, but it's not kind of over-sexualized. But Shag, you are the ultimate arbiter of hotness, so I <laughs> defer to your defer to your judgment. Oh, it's okay. First of all, it's Bart Sears drawing somebody, so obviously they're hot. I mean, whether we're talking about Power Girl or Captain Adam or whoever, everyone's hot in this comic, right? So yes, it is very yeah. sexy. But if you really step back from it, I mean, Power Girl's old costume was, at least in JLE, was basically a bathing suit, right? I mean, there was a lot more flesh showing there. Uh, the way Bart Sears drew it, it was just as form-fitting. You know, it, there was no loose fabric in that thing whatsoever. So anyone, if anyone says this outfit's too, you know, form-fitting, I don't think it's any more form-fitting than the old outfit. So I would say, yeah, this is more chase because every single bit of her skin is covered except for her hands yeah. and her face. Yeah. So uh, I think it looks great. It's, I think, again, the white, the yellow accents it really well, especially with her hair. She looks strong. It gives her like a, a, di- a different look than Superman. The old outfit kind of hinted at yeah. Superman. This gives her her own look. I, I love, I'm a sucker for the 80s. I mean, come on. So yeah, the the big uh, mock collar or mock turtleneck kind of collar, the earrings, all of it. I absolutely adore this costume. I think it looks phenomenal. And it, again, it, take a Power Girl's original costume off the table. This is her best second costume, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they have that sort of Arion magical star kind of near her navel, don't they? Yeah. But I don't think that's consistent. Yeah, it just depends on the artist, absolutely. So let, let, let's let's talk about the, the lecherous side of this here, because again, super sexy. Uh, it, it is weird that they colored those spots wrong, because on the same page, they've got the colors right in the front panel yeah. right below it, so I don't understand that. But, so, Wally makes some comments. He talks about, uh, you can't expect the kids to appreciate mature concerns, like clothing, for instance, like skin-tight clothing stretched over awesome female bodies. 
Now, uh, Wally's line is out of is out of line, without a doubt, especially in front of kids and in the workplace. But it is at least better than previous comments. Here, he's simply complimenting <laughs> how she looks. You know, uh, it probably would have been better if he just said, "Wow, that costume looks amazing." But at least he's not inviting her to his bed like he's done in previous <laughs> issues. So I guess that's some progress. So you're saying this is just you know eight weeks of gardening leave, not dismissal on the spot. Bad. Okay. Yes, there you go. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> and to, to get his comeuppance. Power Girl puts her hands around his, it's either his jawline or his throat. It's a little hard to tell, but the super strong woman has her hand around his throat and squeezing to the point where his tongue's sticking out. So he got his comeuppance. So can I just say, yeah. Catherine interrupts that by going, sorry to interrupt you amusing the children just as she's strangling him. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine's always the best. Catherine has the best lodge. She's, uh, she's, the, she's the star of every one of these issues. But so in the scene in the conference room, right after that, and I only noticed this because I was reading reading the, the digital version and, and was able to zoom in, everyone's watching the monitor with the, the Russian embassy. Wally is still staring at Power Girl, which is actually kind of funny. It's, again, it's it, terrible, but kind of funny. That is less clear in the original because the we were just saying beforehand, the inking is a little heavy. Yeah. So I'm looking at it and I'm going to give Wally the benefit of the doubt. He could be looking at the monitor here. No. But if you say on the clearer version, it's clear where he's looking. Okay, I believe you. It's clear where he's looking and he's got like a little smirk on his face too. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> He's being that guy. Um, again, I mean, everyone in the superhero community wears skin-tight costumes. So it's not like Power Girl's costume is anything new to the superhero world. It's just that Wally's a lech. So. Now, I, I did want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about Power Girl, if I can diverge for just a minute here. Uh, and I've been looking for the right opportunity to bring this up. There's an article from Back Issue Magazine, uh, issue number 33, from April 2009. And it was called The Power Girl Story. It was written by Alex Boney. And he goes on and talks quite a bit about Power Girl. But he actually got a lot of quotes from Keith Giffen about Justice League Europe. And I thought this would be the perfect time to share them. So uh, if you can, just indulge me a moment here. He talks about how when Justice League was gearing up, this is, this is a quote from Giffen. When Justice League Europe was gearing up, we were handed a list of characters and Power Girl was one of them. And to be honest, at first, I didn't want her. It, what it was, apparently, they didn't know what to do with the character. So again, quoting Giffen here, he says, when we got her for JLE, I just thought she was angry and stacked. Stacked and angry. <laughs> and that's pretty much how we looked at her. At first, we thought she was just a cipher. She was just an angry Supergirl. But as it progressed, we found a direction for her anger. In each one of the books, we tried to use a straight man. In Justice League, it was Batman or John Jones. In Justice League Europe, it was always going to be Captain Adam. But Captain Adam became something of a Jonah, the ancient mariner of the group. Everything crappy came down on him. And he almost became the frustrated person. Uh, we didn't really have a straight man anymore. So Power Girl came along, and she became the straight man slash straight woman. Power Girl started out as an angry window into the world, and then sort of became the backbone. Captain Adam started that way, but Power Girl eventually took over that role. In Justice League, it was, uh-oh, Batman's here, now you're in trouble. In Justice League Europe, it was, uh-oh, Kara's here, now you're in trouble. And then they go on to talk about the uh, the addition of the cat, specifically. Giffen says, <laughs> I don't really think the character, meaning Power Girl, gelled in my head until we introduced the cat. It was Andy Helfer's idea that she would have a cat, and we made her this horrifying cat that she would just initially keep around to drive everyone crazy. Uh, then she eventually developed a fondness for the cat, this foul, wretched, one-eyed monstrosity, and it gave her sort of a soft spot. So it's interesting how it's about this era, when she gets the cat and the new costume, that they, Giffen says he sort of finally found his way into the character. So I'm interested to see how she's handled 
handled. I know there are definitely some missteps going forward with Power Girl, but I don't know whether those are, well, Giffen's still on the book, so I'm interested to see how that plays out. Now, uh, they do mention here, and I'm glad they did in the article, Giffen did say Power Girl's origin had been largely sidestepped throughout the series because, uh, quote, we never really delved that far into her past because there be tigers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad he acknowledged just what a mess her origin was at the time. Yeah. So one thing I was going to say, my medical hat on is, could this be the most realistic portrayal of the effects of radioactivity in any comic book ever? There are no pants shredding green muscles, no organic web spinners, no 20-year leap into the future, looking at you, Captain Atom, (laughs) sweating and despair. And this is what radiation sickness is. None of your weird mutations. Apart from, I guess, the extremists, they've weirdly mutated, haven't they? But Silver Sorceress really suffering with the radiation. Well, at this point, we don't even know if the extremists were mutated or not. I mean, they're just introduced for all we know. They look this way the whole time. But yeah, I agree. It's really expertly done. In fact, I want to mention that particular panel. Uh, it's it's page mm. two, panel two, and it'll be on the gallery, folks. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Seer, I mean, this just demonstrates in addition to the radiation sickness, but also how amazing Sears is. I mean, look at Silver Surfer's face. You know, mm. uh, there's shadows all over her that are done with lines, not color. Well, there's colors too, but he is specifically outlined with the lines where they are. You can see the sweat even on her lip, you know, the facial expression expression. I mean, look at the fabric gathering on her gloves. I mean, Bard Sears is astonishing. So much emotion on that whole page, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Mm. Great. Now, speaking of strong women, uh, I know you want to talk about Dimitri's wife. I think this is important because Dimitri's family is going to be an ongoing theme in the book going forward. So I think we should talk about her. I know what you want to talk about, but I want to talk about her left knee. I don't know much about knees. Actually, let me rephrase that. I know quite a lot about knees. I was going to think you might. Do not bend that way. That is not the way a left knee bends. Backwards is wrong. (laughs) So... All right, so this this page is it's this beautifully uh, emotional page. Dimitri and his wife have just recently been reunited. They haven't seen each other in a long time. They're unpacking her clothes because she's moving in the embassy. It's their time together. If they're going to make love, let's just put it out there. They're about to. I mean, it's it's a love that's between a husband and a wife that's very joyous. And Bart Sears took the opportunity to try and make it sexy. So yeah, she's standing there in nothing but a long t-shirt and high heels, which I don't get. I'm sorry, what? Why? she wearing a long t-shirt and high heels whatever you know why she's wearing high heels Shannon. well it's the same reason her legs <laughs> bent backwards honestly yeah it's, it's to make the 14 year old boys you know waggle their tongue uh, there we go. but it's unfortunate because the rest of the page it, like if you take out that one part of it the rest of the page is beautiful because i love yeah. one of the panels is actually shaped like a heart you know yeah. it's it's it, it i don't know i as a man who loves his wife tremendously this just fills my heart with joy seeing this i think bart sears has got the script and gone i am never going to have a another opportunity to draw a 60s romance comic. This is my moment. And uh, it's, it's, it is wonderful. And uh, Dimitri and his wife, which I don't, they don't say her name in this issue. I mean, I guess I'll, I, I should know it or I'll find it later, but I couldn't find it in this issue. So, but Dimitri and his wife are about to get their hokey smokes on. So. Oh, good for Dimitri. <laughs> but it, it does bring in this idea of this era, Jelly and Jelly being, being a family. I know we talked about them being work colleagues, but actually they live together in the same building as well. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's that real, there's a unique feel to that, isn't there? And, and Jelly has it more than Just League America. I know I harp on this a lot, but I mean, if you read this book and really pay attention, you know, in Just League America, the characters are Blue Beetle and Booster Gold and Fire and Ice. If you read Just League Europe, it's Rex, it's Dimitri, it's Wally, it's Kara. They 
use their real names because yeah. they are a family. Yeah. Mm. Right. So the only other thing I was going to mention, and you may not have this in your digital version, is the ads. And there's an awful lot of video game ads. But the one that really caught my eye was the ad for the Dick Tracy movie, which is just such a joyous surprise. It came on a page turn. It's such a graphic image and it looks great. And I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Well, I've got the physical copy in front of me, too. Yeah. Oh, OK. okay. Yeah. It is a great ad. It's all black and it's just sort of silhouette of Dick Tracy in the hat. And he's looking at his watch and he's just saying, I'm on my way. Doesn't doesn't say the name of the movie. Nothing. It's really a clever ad. Yeah. Which Classy is a, ad. which is then messed up because the next page you get a, a full page comic for Capri Sun, which completely threw me off. Because at first I'm like, <laughs> why is this monkey in Just League Europe? I don't understand. Oh, OK. <laughs> so, all right. So let's talk about some of the story here as far as like uh, the, ex- the extremists. The extremists coming to Earth, uh, causing all this damage, all this destruction, all this murder, pretty much is entirely Silver Sorceress's fault. Not Ooh, that she gave harsh. up the location. Not well, not the lo- <laughs> not, not, not that she gave up the location or the way to Earth, but because she felt so compelled to go back to Angor. Like Blue Jay's even telling her, "Don't do it." You know, a couple issues ago, and she's like, "I have to." Uh, yeah. Why? Uh, she's so- a sensitive soul. She's a sensitive soul, and she just needed homesickness. Is a powerful emotion. It's very sweet of you to say, but if she hadn't done that, <laughs> that, that lady in the Russian embassy would still be alive. So that's true. That is true. So I, I really want to know uh, who, when we see first meet the extremist. But which, by the way, I got to say, on page three, when we first meet the extremist, uh, Bart Sears again, as always, went all out. When you when you look on page three and you see the second panel, besides that insane building that you <laughs> articulated so lovely, like <laughs> looking at Lord Havoc's just his knuckles, just his knuckles alone, like the detail Bart Sears put in there is amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. Now that I've seen this version, I would love to see Bart Sears as um, Dr. Doom. That would be amazing. I mean, obviously being the, the template this is based on. But I want to know who they were, who was the last human being they were torturing? Like, they make a big deal about this human being who who lasted a long time in their torture. Now I'm wondering who it was. I mean, I wonder if it was a superhero, a regular human. I, don't know, I just feel like there's a story there. Some poor schlub who is probably glad for the sweet release of death in <laughs> <of> this lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tracer Tracker. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a quick mention, there is a reference to someone named Carney in this issue. They don't tell you who that is. Mm, foreshadowing. Yep. Something to remember. <laughs> now, uh, Bor- let's talk about the Russian embassy here. So Boris, uh, the Russian embassy chief, totally dirty dealing with KGB, really bothers me. I mean, they, they pretty much hinted he was bad news earlier in uh, the moving day issue where they found all the bugs in the Russian embassy. But still, it, uh, you know, it, it didn't make me feel good about a Justice League international you know, employee betraying the Justice League. Mm. Not cool. Not cool. And then uh, I, I'm just going to finish. I'm just going to trip hammer through these super fast. But like Kilowog getting lots of screen time. You know, he's in this issue flirting with one of the Russian ladies. Uh, he's actually getting a lot of screen time through all the Just League International issues, which is interesting since he just joined the franchise. I think he's a great addition, actually. He's a good, good supporting character. Oh, yeah. To me, uh, Kilowog will always be the, the technician guy, the guy who fixes stuff, not a Green Lantern. So in my head, that's mm-hmm. who he is. Now, the, uh, interesting, sort of, like a, sort of like a virgin Doctor Who novel, uh, Just League don't show up to almost half through the comic, which is a little strange. And that was a deep cut there, reference for Chris. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, I feel really bad about Tracer Tracker murdering one of the Russian twins. I mean, I, I didn't even notice it until I really read this issue closely. I mean, that, that's horrible. He he cuts her to pieces. I mean, he's a he's a tough dude. He's he sliced up uh, Metamorpho as well during the fight. Yeah. Uh, so do we know which one of the twins died? Ugh. I think it is explained in the next issue, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay. I mean, it's just gross. It's just terrible. It makes me feel so bad. Ugh. It's a butchering. It is not a nice death. It is. He just goes 
to tear Amber's knee and just rips the shreds out of her. Horrible. And all of this is done in the back of the panel. It's not even the front of the panel. It's just sort of casually referenced off to the side. Dream Slayer is trying to get into the head of her sister as well. So they're really, you know, these guys are torturers and they that's what they're doing. Yeah. And, and you actually, you're right. You just see it in the shadows. You see tra- Tracker sitting over a dead body and you see the blood and he's just going, mm, you were too easy, baby. Too easy. Which is just horrible. Ugh. Now, to be a Marvel analog, that is a saber tooth kind of thing. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, also, just to point out, as always, Sue Dibney and Catherine Colbert are the smartest on the team. Uh, you know, Captain Adam's like, hey, where's Rex? They're already on it. You know, they're, Catherine Colbert talks Captain Adam down from blaming Rex, says, no, come on, Rex is the responsible one. And Sue's already been looking for him. So, as always, they are the smartest members of the team. So, since we were talking about attractive women in costumes, uh, Silver Sorceress, again, uh, you know, Bart Sears rendering, so of course she's uh, ridiculously proportioned and whatnot. Uh, her costume, since her original introduction way back in that Just League America issue, she's always had an open stomach panel, right? Like like a cutout of her yeah. fabric, you could see her stomach. Bart Sears did still draw it in a few of these panels, but it didn't get inked very deeply, and it didn't get colored, so it all looks like fabric, which is honestly probably yeah. for the best. I mean, it's such a weird feature, having an open stomach. It's like some kind of Angorian in your Audi examination. It's just weird. It's their equivalent of the boob window. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. What do you think of the helmet with the bunny ears? <laughs> That is what they look like, isn't it? They do have those yeah. like bunny ears. I went back and looked, and her her helmet wasn't like that in the first Just League issue. It had a lot more of a, almost like a gesture look where the fabric was just kind of going off in different directions. It was uh, Kevin McGuire that really turned it into bunny ears. I, I think it's cute. <laughs> yeah, I quite like it. It's very different. Yeah. I quite like it. Yeah. So uh, one more comment on Bart's ears. Again, I, just, I can't say enough good things about his art. And yes, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. Sorry, folks. But just page 11, the last panel, it's just another example uh, all it is is Captain, it's a close-up on Captain Adam, and he's swiveling his head, and he's calling for Rex. But it's just, I mean, God, Bart Sears was so good with Captain Adam. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's like, uh, possibly the best Captain Adam artist. It just looks so good. He really captures the metal, doesn't he? It's yeah. It's kind of absolutely shiny look. is amazing. And the heavy shadows around the eyes and the lips, yeah. and it's just yeah. gl- absolutely glorious. So, Well, you're you're Firestorm fan. You're going to love the black eye shadow. <laughs> you're not wrong. You are not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've kind of covered the issue top to bottom. So this is where I get to take a back seat and let the guests take over for a while. And something I like to call character spotlight. And Chris is going to share some thoughts from one of the characters in this issue. He's going to just give us a picture of where the character was, uh, which really was nowhere until this issue, but and where the character went and what the JLI impacted on them. So Dr. Lewis, would you please tell us about Lord Havoc? Sure. Lord Havoc is an evil genius and the leader of the extremists supervillain group. His story is mired in continuity tangles, multiple retcons, and along the way, some genuinely horrible comics. But <laughs> let's start off nice and simple. This issue of Justice League Europe is the very first appearance of Lord Havoc, although the origins of the world of Angle go all the way back in Justice League history to Justice League of America 87, published in December 1970. So all this time, you knew that? You couldn't have just said Shag is from 1970? Thanks well, thanks, yeah. thanks for everything. That's fine. You obviously didn't read the notes ahead, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> so in that issue, the pre-crisis Justice League of America battled the champions of Angor. That's Wangina, Jack B. Quick, Silver Sorceress, and Blue Jay. And as Shag already mentioned, the champions of Angor were a parody or a tribute of Marvel's Avengers team. So here in Justice League of Europe 15, the extremists are also parody tributes to five Marvel villains. And the group leader, Lord Havoc, is Angle's equivalent to Doctor Doom. 
So in the JLA and JLE issues that preceded this one, we've had months, probably years worth of dropped hints that the superpowered extremist group managed to amass the entire nuclear arsenal of Angor and threatened to destroy the planet. The politicians of Angor didn't believe the extremists would follow through on their threat, but Wangina, Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress were more skeptical and they travelled back to Earth One to seek help from the Justice League. Tragically, it was all too late. Whilst our heroes were away, the psychopathic terrorists had detonated all of the bombs, destroying virtually all human life on Angle. And that is where we discover Silver Sorceress on page one of this book. So you have four more issues of JLE versus the extremists to look forward to. So for those of you reading along with the show, no further spoilers here. Enjoy the story. It's one of the best JLE stories going. So following on from this storyline, there's an extremist's origin story, which shows up in Justice League quarterly number three from summer 1991. The men who would go on to become the extremists attempted an ambitious plan to steal an experimental mega bomb when, well, Chekhov's bomb, it detonates. <laughs> now, because comic book radiation is a bit more benign than the real life stuff, the men who would become extremists weren't incinerated on the spot, but instead started to manifest bizarre powers and mutations. In the case of Lord Havoc, his body and brain grew exponentially, so it can only be contained in rather peculiar mirrored armour, which goes some way to explaining his strange extended cranium. So the extremists show up again in the Breakdowns crossover, which is the epic storyline that brings the Giffen Demetrius era of Wahaha Justice League books to an end. Put your fingers in your ears now if you don't want to hear what happens. And uh, may, may I recommend that some people may not want to hear it anyway. Okay. The extremists battle the combined league on the restored island of Kui Kui Kui. Oops, was that a spoiler? And during the fight, Lord Havoc is seemingly destroyed by a leaguer who shall remain nameless. All I'll say is his name rhymes with Goo Geetle. Now, <laughs> this is the point where Lord Havoc's storylines start to get strange and convoluted. Remember the first issues of Justice League? Jazzercise Black Canary, Captain Marvel, that blink and you'd miss her appearance of Dr. Light? Okay. Good. Then you will remember that Max was acting all weird under the influence of a villainous computer created by Metron. Well, there was a retcon. In Justice League America 96, way after the Giffen de Mateus spell on the book ended, the alien electro-mechanico-organic intelligence and former Flash villain known as Kilgore is revealed to have been hiding as the sentient operating system inside of Metron's computer. And it was Kilgore that was manipulating Max the whole time. When the construct destroyed Metron's computer, Kilgore uploaded itself into some of the remaining cybernetic systems in Max's body and laid dormant like sentient herpes, just <laughs> waiting for its opportunity. That opportunity arrives where Max Lord is believed to have died due to a brain tumour. Kilgore uploads Max's personality and memories into Lord Havoc's body in JLA 98 and 99, and this amalgamation of Maxwell Lord and Lord Havoc persists for ages, even into Shag's favourite Elseworlds book, Justice Riders, where in an Elseworlds-style reimagining, the amalgamated Max Havoc persona is revealed as a fearsome steam locomotive. And if you just read one book with Lord Havoc in it, trust me, this is absolutely the best of the bunch by some much. It's so good. It's so good. So good. It's beautiful. The next reboot comes around the time of Countdown, which is always a guarantee of quality. <laughs> <And the> world... <laughs> Sorry, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Actually, all over my desk. 
the world of Angor is transmuted and rebadged to become Earth 8. And Lord Havoc gets his own six issue miniseries called Lord Havoc and the Extremists by Frank Thierry and Liam Sharp. Havoc is then revisited on Earth 8 during the Multiversity series when Grant Morrison goes nuts with yet more Marvel inspired characters and artifacts. And when the darkness overwhelms Lord Havoc, it falls to Blue Jay to shoot him in the head with an arrow to put him out of his insanity and misery. Another decade, another reboot. During DC Rebirth, the extremist group are once more the most dangerous villains on Angor. In Steve Orlando and Ivan Reese's Justice League of America, Alexi, the dying prince of Kravia, makes a deal with the devil which saves his life and gives him metallic skin. So naturally, he adopts the name Lord Havoc. He leads <laughs> the extremists to our, to our Earth, but returns to Angor when there's a chance that the planet might be given another chance to live. Ultimately, Lord Havoc and <laughs> Dream Slayer sacrifice themselves to give their dead homeworld a chance of rebirth. See what I did there? <laughs> Suggesting that there's more than a hint of the tension between the savagery and dignity of Doctor Doom in this latest incarnation of Lord Havoc. So there we have him, a fraud, deformed, brutal, occasionally noble super genius whose major vulnerability seems to be DC editorial mandated reboots. <laughs> Well, thank you for all of that. That was incredibly thorough. I personally followed uh, Lord Havoc and the Extremist till about the time of Countdown. And, and then it was just too much. I, I was like, all right, I, I had to check out at that point personally. But uh, he's an interesting to see. You know, earlier I said they didn't really have a lot of legs and go very far with DC. I guess I'm mistaken. I mean, they did. But none of the comics you referenced are necessarily beloved or remembered. Uh, no, I would definitely say that is the case. I've read more Lord Havoc comics than anyone should. <laughs> <laughs> the, the commitment our guests make for the show is uh, a well and above the call of duty. So thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate that. That's a pleasure. All right. Well, with that, folks, now we're going to move on to the One Punch Award. This is where we nominate our favorite moment of the issue, whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny or awe-inspiring or, or whatever. Both myself and Chris are going to pick one moment, and that one moment would be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Chris, you're the guest, uh, unfortunately for everyone here. Uh, why don't you tell us your suggestion for the award? Firstly, I just want to say I'm really glad you moved this segment away from picking the funniest moment in the book, because boy, that would have been slim pickings from this one. I, I, I uh, think the only <laughs> funny moment is uh, Kilowog in the Norshin floor. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Or possibly Kara strangling Wally, but you know. <laughs> so my nomination is really an art pick and it's page 19. It's the panel, the sequence of images showing the fight between Metamorpho and Tracer. Mm. It's one of those moments where time is slowed down and we get a series of pictures as the fight progresses, as if we're watching the battle unfold in slow motion. Rex forms a wrecking ball with his left hand and swings at Tracker who dodges underneath. Metamorpho Metamorpho's momentum carries him over the top of Tracer, who then leaps over Metamorpho, punching him in the face and simultaneously pulling off Rex's arm, which appears to have turned into mercury or some other liquid. Tracer karate chops Rex's other arm as Blue Jay flies in to assist, only to be grabbed and knocked unconscious by Gorgon's tentacle. And Tracer goes in for a two-footed kick to Rex's solar plexus. And I love when comics manage to capture movement in a series of dynamic but still images in this way. And this fight has such kinetic energy. This is my one punch, a leap, a swerve, a chop, and a kick award nominee. It's a good one. It really is. Because another thing this thing, these panels demonstrate 
too, is, you know, we love the Justice League Europe, but the Justice League doesn't usually fight people, right? They, they yeah. fight each other yeah. most of the time, as we're seeing in the Despero issues in Justice League America right now. So this is a good example of what happens when the heroes we love go up against a highly skilled combat team. You know, again, in this case, it's equivalent to Sabretooth, who we all know is supposed to be an amazing fighter from the Wolverine mm-hmm. issues. And it shows exactly what would happen, uh, you know, when Rex, if you went up against Sabretooth. And yeah, it's really powerful. I, I remember reading this just recently for the reread. Normally, I fly through these things, right? I read them and I read them a couple times. But each one of these panels, I paused. It was just like, wow. I mean, just brutal. So, uh, and it's interesting, by the way, when you read panel by panel mode, they just give you like two panels at a time. So you get to see mm-hmm. this fight progress as it goes along, mm-hmm. which is really well done. So that's going to be hard to beat. My pick was page 17, which is also uh, an art moment, which was just the arrival of the extremists oh, yeah. on Earth. Because we had seen how disgusting and malicious they were by beating Silver Sorcerers, right? We've seen how dangerous they are. And here, boom, they arrive on our Earth. And suddenly, you know, there's a big explosion. Everything's knocked over. Blue Jays collapse. You know, Metamorpho's been knocked to the ground. In fact, Blue Jays going, oh God, oh God, no. And uh, and you see Dream Slayer uh, in the front <laughs> in, in full glory. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the fabric on his clothes, on his pants is loose. You know, it's just, it's creepy. So I, I think both are great moments for the extremists. Now we have to decide which one's better. I, I'm a little fearful because you are the person who maintains the spreadsheet uh, of all the wins. So I'm a little scared that if I, if I screw this up, up. <laughs> I may jeopardize the future of the spreadsheet tracking. I was going to take this moment to remind you who keeps the spreadsheet updated. And, uh, you, you, you decide what you want, Shag, but I know what history will record as the winner here. <laughs> I guess uh, we should just, uh, history is written by the winner, so I guess we will go ahead and give it to, to Tracer and Metamorpho. Congratulations. The battle there, uh, the incredibly vicious and brutal battle, has uh, won the One Punch Award. Congratulations. Wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for that moment. So congratulations. <laughs> now, Chris, I need to ask a favor. Uh, Dimitri's kids are just running wild around the embassy right now. Once Wally saw Power Girl's new costume, he lost all sense of decorum and responsibility, and he stopped watching the kids. And Dimitri and his wife, they're currently occupied, obviously. So the kids are unsupervised. Would you mind hanging around here for a little bit and keep an eye on the kids? Babysitting. Metamorpho and Silver Sorceress are bleeding from their eyeballs. Yeah, sure. Childcare seems an Entirely appropriate use of my medical skills. What's the Russian for step away from the transport tube anyway? <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate you uh, realizing the importance of, of the situation. <laughs> now, don't worry, Chris. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Chris is taking care of that for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Law. Hi everyone, this is Shag's daughter. Just wanted to wish all the doubts out there a very happy Father's Day. Want to make something of it? And a very special thanks to my daughter for that very kind message to all you dads out there. <laughs> 
Now, as we get into your feedback, remember, go out on the social medias. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. And as I always say, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, let me know. We'll assign you the appropriate embassy. Now, got a quick request to you folks at home. If you haven't left an iTunes review, please think about going out there and doing that. We haven't really got many reviews in, uh, in a little while. Now, don't get me wrong. There's like a jillion of them out there. But, like, my ego demands a jillion in one. So, if you don't mind, it would be appreciated. Helps raise the profile of the show and helps new people find the show. Now, I'm going to get into your comments. They're mainly coming from our website, email, social media, things like that. And I'm going to be pulling just bits and pieces of your feedback because you guys have left so much I would be here the entire night reading all of this. But we'll be covering, just again, bits and pieces coming from the most recent episode featuring Justice League of America number 39 with Carlin and Justice League Europe number 14 with Stella. Now, I want to say, in the beginning, we did get lots of feedback on the opening from the last episode about the Justice League Europe scripter, and I sincerely appreciate all the support. I got lots of great comments about this topic on the website. I suggest you go out there and read them. I'm not going to address those specific comments here for the very reasons that we're trying to put that topic behind us. But again, thank you to everyone who wrote in about it, and a special thanks to some people who wrote me some private messages. Thanks to Professor Alan Middleton, Tim Price, Steve Givens, David Ace Gutierrez, Jeff Poyer, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Clint Robinson, and Jeff Messer. Thanks again, everyone, for your understanding on how I'm tackling this topic and uh, let's just move forward from here. All right, first up, message from Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does podcasts such as the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus writes, I love the Despero saga, but I always forget the Spy Magazine thing is in one of these issues, and I do believe that belongs in a previous one. I get what you elaborated on about the jumping on point, the regular characters not being featured in the general tone of the magazine, yet the effect is jarring, to say the least, with the second part. Then later on, Gus says, Very interesting conversation on the role of women in the series, what the issue was attempting, and how things were 30 years ago on this topic. Not good, basically. And it was great having Stella's perspective on this. Thanks, Gus. Appreciate hearing from you, buddy. Then we heard from Rob McCarthy, who has the Hell on Wheels webcomic. He writes in, uh, Because Stella had addressed identity crisis... In many ways, identity crisis is really bad. You know how it does work? It's a whodunit with major superheroes. That works. Superheroes don't usually have to figure out who done it. Hmm. That's a good point, Rob. Thanks for writing in, buddy. Then we're from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz writes in about Guy Gardner and the psychology issues surrounding his bump on the head. Liz cites a famous case of Phineas Gage. Liz says, I think I remember him from Psychology 101. He was a foreman who was noted for calmness. However, some damage to a device they were working on sent a pipe through Phineas's head, causing brain damage. This caused his emotions to be totally different, making him a man without emotional control and causing him great emotional outbursts. He lost his job and whatnot, making the first connection to mental illness and one of physicality. I think that's whom y'all were talking about. So if it's the same as Guy, that explains a lot about Guy's change in personality. The odd reactions in the JLI, specifically from Jean, he should be more concerned about what his mind was going through. Hmm, I took that class 30 years ago and got a B plus in it. I may have some of those facts wrong, but never thought I'd have a use for that knowledge. <laughs> Thanks, Liz, for sharing your old Psychology 101 history. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy, who runs the Symbol Pending blog. Symbol says, Lots of things for me to get my teeth into with the Justice League Europe and Kara O'Neill here. I know it's an identity she adopts, but I can't get used to you both calling her Karen. I always call her Kara, so I'm not sure whether it's just a UK-US pronunciation thing. Uh, and, and no, Symbol, we're, we're genuinely calling her Karen, because that's the identity, the secret identity she takes during this post-crisis era. But I totally get what you mean. The Kara issue with pre-crisis and post-crisis gets very confusing. Symbol goes 
goes on to say, I'd be remiss of me not to mention that Power Girl's costume on the cover, which I personally hate the hair of, by the way, is the last appearance of her scoop-necked top costume, uh, which, despite what the boob window people will tell you, is the costume she wore for the longest time. So it's probably the one that most people most associate her with. At least from this era, modern comic fans may have a different point of view. And then Simple Penny posted on social media that uh, a week ago I had no Justice League Europe comics, now I have almost a full set. I blame Shag. Well, Symbol Penning, you're welcome. Uh, and then an interesting conversation developed between Martin Gray, Symbol Penning, and Siskoid all about the label Gypsy and the origins of how that's a derogatory term. It's really interesting discussion, and I learned some things. So uh, you should check that out. Again, it's out on our website. They were from Josh Romano, who writes in, My Blahaha Award goes to Stella for calling the show the Blah 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 Podcast. <laughs> uh, and then he says, I do disagree about the Blahaha Award for issue 38 of Justice League of America. That pineapple totally deserved the win. Sorry, Josh. Uh, uh, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Yours just happens to be wrong, and so was Carlin's. There you go. You heard from Everton Vieira do Carmo from our Brazilian embassy. He writes in to say, I didn't read the Justice League Detroit era, but I was able to understand the characters because Martian Manhunter shows them on the monitor at the beginning of issue number one. Uh, Everton also mentions that Martian Manhunter's name in Brazil uh, until 2003 was Ajax. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, then they say, the first time I read the story, I understood that the city was New York with the UN flag, and I thought that he had invaded the embassy. Was isn't that where Steel was at the end of the Detroit League? You know, every time you ask a great question, uh, when I recently reread the Justice League Detroit era, I actually stopped when Conway left the book. So I haven't reread those final issues where Steel dies in quite a while. So I can't remember where he ended up. I'm sure someone out there remembers, so feel free to drop that in the comments, folks. Then we heard from Matt Ev from our Scottish Embassy. Matt writes in to say, The Sparrow Saga is indeed one of the high points of the JLI. And the first issue is absolutely amazing. A remarkable tonal shift for this book, but all for the better for it. Adam Hughes really takes it to the next level. And that closing splash page is one of the best images of John Jones ever drawn. Considering he's my favorite comics character, that's really saying something. Imposing and quietly powerful, a serene and wise figure, but one whose friends and surrogate daughter finds you should definitely not mess with. Exactly how he should be handled. The issue also, I believe, explains the somewhat baffling inclusion of John Henry Irons on the cover of the recent JLI Omnibus, a character who didn't even exist when the comics inside came out. So what Matt's referencing, yeah, is if you get volume two of the JLI Omnibus, Omnibus, wow, it's a hard word to say, uh, there's all these little faces throughout it, and one of the faces is John Henry Irons Steel, and it's got a lot of us baffled. Well, Matt thinks he's onto it here. He's saying, um, my theory is that Kevin McGuire had a list of every character who appeared in the JLI, whether they were inert, inactive, whatever, and Steele was among them because obviously he appeared in these issues. But he got mixed up and drew the wrong one. Matt says, I have no evidence for this, but I think it's a solid hunch. You know what, Matt? I'll tell you what. I, that is the most logical explanation I've heard yet for why John Henry Irons is on that cover. So, I'm going to give you credit, sir. Good call. Or from Steve Gibbons, who writes in to say, that Despero storyline in Justice League America has the distinction of being one of my favorite story arcs from the series, while at the same time being the moment I realized I was becoming tired of the series as a whole. Now, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love this era of the Justice League, and it was definitely the shot in the arm the team needed at the time. But the concept very clearly had a shelf life, and that shelf life was starting to come to a close for me at the time the Despero story was published. Then Steve goes on to say the misogyny and the sexual objectification of the female characters was really bothersome to me. No, I wasn't especially a woke young man, but I always had a deep respect for the female characters in my comics, especially the DC heroines, and it bothered me to see them get sexually objectified so much of the time. I was also a Wally West fan, and still am, so the exaggerated characterization of his womanizing, which was present in his solo series but handled very differently, also bothered me. I don't say all this to trash the books, but to emphasize the point in the stories had started to degrade a little in terms of how the characters were being depicted, 
essentially becoming one-note parodies. It was fortunate that both books started to move in a very different direction, starting with the Despero and extremist stories, and then headed into breakdowns. You know, Steve, that's, again, all good points, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Then we heard from Paul Wildenberger, who goes, uh, the second most controversial topic of the episode is the pronunciation of the name Despero. I've always pronounced it Despero, but I can certainly see how someone might think it's pronounced Despero. Personally, I think Despero is correct. But if you say Despero instead, I will definitely know who you mean. <laughs> that was great, Paul. Keeping in mind, folks, all of this was written in text, so you can pronounce Despero, Despero, you can pronounce it any way you want. So that was hilarious, Paul. Thank you. Then we're from Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy, who does the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. Uh, one of the things Martin says is, Justice League of America number 38 was one of the most dramatic, shocking issues. I hated that Gypsy's parents got killed after she received her happy ending. The fact that J.M.D. Mateus was trying to satire with Despero's internal, infernal monologue is bizarre, given the issue does have so much horror in it. I mean, the scene with poor Hank. Then he goes on to say, it's interesting that Shag mentions Jean's uncharacteristic threat to murder Despero. He had a similar understandable bloodthirst back in the final issue of the original JLA run after Professor Ivo killed Steele. That's an interesting observation, Martin. Uh, you know, it just shows how protective Jean was of that uh, Detroit League, I think. Then he goes on to say, the Just League Europe issue was okay, pretty standard fare, but I loved the Linda Medley, Jose Marzan art. It was so clean and characterful, just great. Apart from Wally Shorts. Wally was in girl shorts. They were practically Daisy Dukes. Uh, Martin, you, do you have a problem with Daisy Dukes on men or women? Come on, what's the problem here? Anyway, then Martin goes on to say, I have a question. Given the film fan manifested not as a proper kaiju monster, but as a costume complete with detachable head, why was he giant-sized? Shouldn't it have been stunt person-sized? It's only logical, asked Cindy Franklin. <laughs> logical ass. <laughs> you make an interesting point, Martin, but I think uh, the argument could be the fact that uh, when the creature appeared, it was on a Jumbotron television. So that could be the counter-argument that it was a Jumbotron television, so he appeared you know, along that scale. But the other answer would be, it's just a comic book. <laughs> they were from Captain Entropy, who writes in with a very serious missive, folks. Captain Entropy says, I can't keep this a secret any longer. I have to get this off my chest. I'm now going to tell you something that I don't think anyone at Marvel or DC ever knew. The primary diplomatic mission from one country to another is known as an embassy. Embassies are generally in the receiving nation's capital. Lesser missions to foreign lands and other major cities are known as consulates. Consulates are headed by a consul. Instead of an ambassador, are charged d'affaires. I said that totally wrong. Uh, think vice ambassador. Consequently, New York does not have embassies. It has consulates. It also has permanent missions, which are missions to international organizations like the UN. I feel better now. The truth has come out. I hope Comicdom Assembled can forgive me. Well, thank you, Captain Entropy, for pointing that out, that we should be using the term consulate instead of embassy. That is a very interesting and important distinction that I, I will now immediately forget. So, thank you for your kind feedback. Uh, Mike Dynas, who apparently read Captain Entropy's comment, says that uh, he's writing in from the Pacific Canadian Consulate. Well done, Mike. Well done. Uh, Mike then goes on to say, I definitely did not pick up on the satire with Despero. I mean, after all the jokey jokes, the neck snapping wasn't what I expected at all. And with the amazing art by Adam Hughes, and with the saliva bed on page 14, or the next panel with a stretched eyelid, whew, this is no Oreos and milk. Having said all that, I think that made the threat of Despero that much more intense. It really works for this issue because no one was expecting it. Even if J.M.D. Mateus thought it was a satire to spoof the horror, they had to use some great horror imagery to make this book a great scare. It really ramped up how bad Ass Despero is. So good. 
Then Mike goes on to say, I think I bought this Justice League Europe comic based solely on the cover alone. I didn't appreciate how good Linda Medley was at the time, but I loved her Castle Waiting series, and looking back on this issue, it's fun to see where she started. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. And yeah, folks, definitely check out Castle Waiting by Linda Medley. I was looking at it on Comicsology just today. It looks gorgeous. Then we heard from Siskoid from the Maritime Canadian Embassy. He's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which shows like Zero Hour Strikes, Oh Hot More Not, and many more. Siskoid wrote, As I don't remember what happens with Power Girl's cat, I was surprised to hear that it wasn't the same cat in the Power Girl series. Because it's just as ratty and disgruntled. Uh, if it doesn't compute, I'm just going to say the cat's fate changed post-Zero Hour or post-Infinite Crisis. You know, Siskoid, I, I had heard it was a different cat. So I did a little research. I actually can't verify one way or another. Uh, I would like Symbol Penning made a comment about the cat. I... I I need an authority to tell me whether it's the same cat or not. However, I will say, in doing my research, I had a total forehead slapping, I should have had a V8 moment, when I read a piece that said that Stinky the Cat was, of course, inspired by Supergirl's cat, Streaky. How did I not think of that before? I cannot believe that. All right, then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez. He says, uh, this was the Spy Magazine issue? My memory was that the Spy cover was actually the JLA cover. My old mind! Yes, David, you're slowly losing your mind. Then he says, but man, would this move the turning point for JLA? Yeah, this this is a major, major shift for JLA, David. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl and Huntress podcast. Tim says, my own crazy observations. In JLA number 38, when Kilowog walks past Mr. Miracle, who's holding an old landline phone, Miracle has the wrong end pointed up to his ear based on where the cord is attached. Not a wahahaha moment, but it makes me giggle. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Tim, because I didn't mention that on last episode, and that was a very funny moment. Then he says, for Just Like Europe number 14, Maybe I missed someone mentioning that the last page with Blue Jays Help Me must be an homage to The Fly from 1958, keeping with the movie themes. That is a brilliant observation, Tim. That is really, really clever. I'm now going to claim that I said it on the episode and take full credit from you. Thanks, man. Uh, then we're here from Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network, including shows such as the Martian Manhunter Podcast, Idlehead of Diablo, a Justice League Detroit blog, and so much more. Frank says, I used to see Spy Magazine on the magazine rack of the mall bookstores where I bought my direct market comics. I was never urbane enough to try Spy, plus at a glance at the covers on Google indicate that it was probably deeply problematic. Looks like Bonfire of the National Lampoon or Bill Mayer Monthly. I mostly just remember the wonky proto-Photoshop in place of editorial cartooning. And many people wrote in to say Spy Magazine was a real thing. I had no idea. Frank goes on to say, I need to add a phonetic rendering for Despero, taken directly from Who's Who in the DC Universe number 16 inside the front cover, or Who's Who, the definitive director of the DC Universe, number six is Despero. Pretty much the same uh, pronunciation. He wants to add that to all his blog posts. And that's a specific dig at me, because last episode I was all over the place with pronouncing that name. However, I want you to know, Frank, because of your comment, I did paste the image from the Who's Who glossary at the beginning of this episode for Michael Bailey and I. It's not to say we got it right every time, but hopefully we got a little bit better. Then Frank goes on, uh, Castell and I talked about Wonder Woman and her inclusion in Just League Europe and what that might have been like. Frank says, I'm curious if Wonder Woman would have had any real impact on Europe's trajectory if she'd stayed. In all honesty, I think that her anticipated role was taken over by Catherine Colbert. She might have been the classy straight woman in a flirtatious relationship with Captain Adam, who helped the team out of diplomatic jams. To my chagrin, George Perez was still writing Diana as an innocent, a role already well covered in the league by ice. Colbert was a sophisticate and much more reflective of the prior characterization 
of Diana. You know, Frank, that makes an interesting point. Yeah, if Diana had been on the book, you're probably right. Catherine Colbert's role probably wouldn't have been diminished. And honestly, I like the character so much, I'm kind of glad that it worked out this way. Then we heard from Paul Eames, author of Hope Springs and Becoming God. Paul says, I'm a huge fan of the Blahaha podcast. Obviously, Paul, you're a man of good taste. Uh, Paul goes on to say, something you mentioned in the Justice League Europe annual number one got me thinking. I'd love to hear a Primal Force revisited series, or even something more general like a Cancel Too Soon series that hits multiple titles. Paul, I love that idea. I may be stealing that for an episode of FW Presents. Great suggestion. Thank you. They were from Jimmy McGlinchey from our Irish Embassy. Jimmy writes, Irish Embassy calling. Apologies for not posting for a while. Unfortunately, someone in the European team told Maxwell Lord that someone had been searching through the Embassy trash bins to collect dirt on the JLI. He's appointed me to go through all the bins to remove anything incriminating before they're collected by the refuse disposal. Unfortunately, he sent Shag's bins first, and boy, I am wrecked. Gathering and incinerating all the stuff that I found in there. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. As always, I love your introductions. Jimmy goes on to say the whole episode with Gypsy was very horror filled and the final entrance of Jean made this a cliffhanger that you wanted to get the next issue ASAP. I'll be interested in your discussion next time out on the first page of uh, issue 39 as it mirrors the last page of issue 38 but from a different perspective. Uh, Jimmy, by the way, thank you so much for pointing that out. Uh, you heard me talk about that a little earlier in the episode and your uh, information here helped guide me to that. So thank you for your comment. Then on Justice League Europe number 14, he says, I enjoyed Linda Medley's cartoony style. I don't think she comes back to Justice League Europe, but she is definitely coming over to JLA for the General Glory storyline. Awesome. I can't wait. I haven't read that far ahead, so that's news to me. I am looking forward to it. Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, the Superman 3 Movie Minute, and much more. Chris says, coming in late. But this issue of JLA was definitely one of those that made me actually say, oh shit, repeatedly, as I was reading it. For me personally, this is kind of the book's last hurrah. But they went out with a bang. Oh, and as others have said, Spy was a real magazine. I even have a few compilation books of their separated at birth columns. They were, of course, very irreverent, but often very on the nose. Thanks, Chris. And Sean McLaughlin also wrote in to point out that Spy Magazine was a real magazine. Thanks, guys. Again, I had no idea. They went from Jeff Poyer from the Graphically Speaking podcast. Jeff says, Stella might want to check out Castle Waiting, the Eisner Award-winning fantasy stories written and drawn by Linda Medley. My daughter Nori and I recently covered the graphic novel The Curse of Brambley Hedge on our podcast, Graphically Speaking. Plug, plug. <laughs> I'm glad you plugged it, Jeff. Then we heard from Herbert Fung. He says, oh man, that nugget from Carlin brings back some memories. Those brown paper sleeves from the subscription services were terrible. I was living in Vancouver at the time, so more often than not, there would be water exposure on the ends along with a hard crease down the middle. You know, Herbert, I, uh, I had a subscription to Firestorm back in the, oh my gosh, the mid-80s, and I remember very clearly that fold down the middle all the time as the mailman shoved it into the mailbox. <laughs> all right, folks, now this is the part of the show where I thank everyone who shared the JLI podcast on their social media timeline, Facebook and Twitter. As I say every month, folks, I know this is a long list of names. However, these folks have showed their support and helped promote the show. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals. So this time out, we're looking at over 70 names of people that promoted the show. So here's to everyone who helped promote last episode by sharing on Facebook or Twitter. Our thanks go to Al Girding, Andre TFG, Baby Skeletor, Between the Pages Blog, Bill from the Bat Pod, Billy Delicious, Bizarro Jimmy Olsen, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Carlin Trammell and Nerd Lunch, Changing Shades, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Clint Robinson and his Coffee and Comics and Days of High Adventure podcast accounts. Dale Russell, Damian Droud Whiter, DC Now, a DC fan podcast. Dr. Jennifer Swartz Levine, Dylan Knows, Ed Moore, Frederico Hernandez, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, Jeff Poyer. 
Justin Steiner, Keechi Baker, Kirk Spencer, Lizanne Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matt Ev, Max Romero and his Human Flycast account, It's Plastic Man, and the Mirror Factory accounts, Michael Kramer, Michael May, Michael Thomas, Michael Dynas, the only American Captain Britain fan, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Relatively Geeky, Rob Kelly and his Digest cast, Mountain Comics, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Comics accounts, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, RV Athletics Fan, Scott O'Brown, Man of Comics, Sean McLaughlin, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Slangward Scott, Stella and Backworld Oracle, The Barbara Gordon Podcast. Steve Givens, Super Lad Kid, Supergirl Radio, Superman Radio Revisited, Symbol Pending, Tim Price, Trent Lewis, Ultron Is My Elvis, Ward Hill Terry, and yes, Ward Hill Terry, I saw you retweeted specifically just to get mentioned in the feedback. Mission accomplished. Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, Weird Warriors Podcast, Zane Reed Johnson. Whew. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Carlin or Stella. Just let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post. That's where most of the activity is going on. You can also find us on Facebook as Just League International, Blahaha Podcast, or on Twitter as JLI Podcast, or email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Carlin Trammell and Stella for appearing on the most recent episode of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Mike and Chris together in the same embassy. Why are we doing this again, Molly? It's simple, Mercy. Your adventures as a trekker haven't stopped, and neither has Ron Randall. Who's Ron Randall? He's the writer and artist behind the comic books that star you, me, and Scoff. (coughs) Oh, him. So what does he want? An autograph? No. He wants people to help fund his Kickstarter. They can go to trekkerkickstarter.com and find out how to back the project and what rewards they can get. They might even get to share an adventure with you. What? I'm not taking some wet-behind-the-ears wannabes out to get themselves shot up. Where did he get an idea like that? Well, he's done it successfully before. (sighs) Typical. Ron Randall's Trekker has a new Kickstarter beginning this summer. Remember to go to TrekkerKickstarter.com for all the information on backer rewards, stretch goals, and how you can help bring the next Mercy St. Clair adventure into reality. Listen to Longbox Crusade.
right, folks, we're back from break. And yes, it does appear the JLI Teleporter has brought both Mike and Chris together for us. First, Mike, thanks so much for coming back to the embassy. It is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs? You can find me at FortressOfBailey2.com, which is the home of the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network. You can listen to shows like From Crisis to Crisis, which I co-host with my friend Jeff, where we talk about the post-crisis adventures of Superman, which is meaningless now, but at one point it was really an important distinction. Um... (laughs) There's the Overlooked Dark Knight, where Andy Leyland and I talk about various Batman stories that we feel don't really get talked about all that much. It's kind of the opposite of Nightcast uh, in a lot of ways now. And uh, the newest show on the network, because I made a promise on Facebook, don't make proclamations unless you're willing to back them up, my friends. I can't imagine what that's like sitting here with my 13 Aquaman action figures. (laughs) But my friends Bethany and Allison and I, I affectionately call us the BAM crew because uh, you can make our names up like an Emerald Lagasse thing. And we have these Superman and Lois tapes where we're talking about the new excellent CW show, Superman and Lois. And when that show is like takes a little hiatus, like it did five episodes in, uh, we talk about other DC Superman and Lois related stuff. So uh, that's been a lot of fun. It's 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 interesting doing a show that goes up two days after after I record it. I don't know how that. I think Congress got involved on that. That's that's why they're not getting anything done. <laughs> it's a rapid turnaround, sir, without a doubt. So yeah, that's it. You can find it all there. Well, Mike, again, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It is always a joy to talk to you, old friend. Anything for you, Shag, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I think it's crazy that between the two of us, podcasting-wise, we're on our fourth president. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I don't want to think about that. All right. (laughs) We're just going to move right past that. All right, and now, Chris, I really appreciate you being on the show. You've been a loyal, loyal friend of the show uh, for a long time now. The spreadsheet is absolutely wonderful. You know, I forgot to mention, you're another one of our international guests. You're from our England embassy. Isn't that correct? As if people couldn't guess from the accent. Yes, that's absolutely right. I'm, I'm <laughs> over here in the UK on the other side of the pub, closer to Paris. Ah. Handy for the Paris embassy. Well, it is always nice to have an international guest or a European guest on the Justice League Europe issue. So that's a nice symmetry. And, and I wanted to specify, because we do have some folks who were born in England, but live in Scotland now. Uh, so that's, you know, it's worth pointing out. Now, Chris, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the internets? So I'm part of a podcast. We have a team of hosts on a podcast called the Storium Arc Podcast. Storium.com is a website which is part collective creative writing experience and part online role-playing games. It's great for people who want to flex their creative muscles and either don't know anyone with similar interests or who can't meet up in person for pandemic reasons. It's a whole lot of fun. I know you've been a role-playing Shag. I think you'd really enjoy it. The podcast covers the mechanics and showcases some of the great stories being told over on the site. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, check us out at storymark.com or at storymark on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And there might just be a film and water in the future as well. Nice. And folks, uh, as always, in the show notes, I always be sure to include links to uh, people's sites. So you'll see links to the Storium Arc podcast there and a link to Chris's spreadsheet, which is called the Bwahaha Award Intangible 
full spreadsheet of mirth. So uh, links that will be in the show notes for both of those. So again, thanks, Chris. I, I, this has been an absolute blast. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Uh, it's been a pleasure and an honor. All right. That's going to do it, folks. Now, come back next episode when we cover Justice League America, number 40, and Justice League Europe, number 16. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. Seriously, have you not been paying attention? You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Mike. And I'm Chris. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something something of it? it?